Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to, uh, to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November, or November, December the 15th, 2015. This is episode 1694 of the Survival Podcast, and I bet there's a lot of you that kind of wish it was November 15th as you have the hustle and bustle getting ready for the Christmas holidays and things like that. I have two words for you people. Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. I, I did all my Christmas shopping for the people that were getting something from me this year. And if it was a mass-produced item or a, a, something like that, we did it on Amazon with Amazon Prime. If it was a specialty item, we ordered from a website. If it was silver for a kiddo, we ordered from a website. Never left the house to buy anything for Christmas other than a couple decorations that Dorothy wanted to add to the household. Uh, I believe in using technology for better existence and, and fighting people at stores to save a dollar on a TV set is not something that I see making my life better in any way. One thing I do see making my life better, though, is the occasional adult beverage. Sitting on my back porch, watching my ducks in the evening as they head home, and drinking a fine apple cider. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I recently did a show about making simple ciders, simple meats, and simple fruit wines. And uh, I, I'm kind of blown away at the number of people that have sent me pictures of bottles with balloons or airlocks on them chugging away. That's just awesome. Because the biggest thing I want to do is get people to try things. And, and this one has really hit a home run. It's also created a deluge of questions. And most of the questions I've gotten are the same question over and over again. So I figured I'd do a nice little simple show and you know, get 10, 12 questions. Even if I got 20, 30 questions, it'd be the same 10 or 12 over and over again, like the emails. And I did this nice little simple show answering all these questions in one place. And when somebody said, how do I, what about this, etc., I just said, oh, here's the show. And we're going to do that, but it won't be 10 to 12 questions. Oh, my God. The avalanche that came in. I'm going to do my best with them. And uh, But this is a follow-up to episode 1684, so that was, what, 10 episodes ago. That kicked all this off. So in about two and a half, three weeks, you've got people fermenting ciders and fruit juices and meads and making sizers and melamols and uh, methylogens and all kinds of great stuff. And that's that's awesome. And I, I think it's something that a lot of home brewers, home winemakers, home vendors uh, want. They want more people involved. And sometimes, you know, taking a step back from trying to do everything perfect and do everything good enough is what it takes to get people kind of out of the chair and into you know into actually making this stuff. So that's what happened here in a big way, bigger than I, I could have thought of. So I'll be answering your question. So everything in today's show assumes that you've heard episode 1684 and that you heard the first segment of yesterday's show where I talk about racking and bottling because I'm not going to go back into that today because that's a long subject into itself. That's why I did that yesterday. So if you want to know anything about racking or bottling, other than a few things that we'll cover that are technical things today for racking, go to yesterday's show. If you want to get the full background of where all this stuff's coming from, episode 1684, of course there will be a link in today's show notes. Before we go forward, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold... 
I go to jambullion.com and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as, uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same Silver Eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that like, you need to get out of the dollar, they're going to burn it to the ground, it's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor of the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5% to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. And sponsor of the day number two today is the awesome, illustrious Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com, where he'll teach you to make cooking a, a life skill by focusing on technique over recipe. If you don't think cooking is a survival skill, Brother, you've never lived on MREs for six months like I have. You get pretty creative in those situations. Being able to cook all the food that we talk about growing for ourselves and sourcing locally is a great way uh, to enhance your quality of life and to save money. If you're not, if you know, if you become a great cook, you're not going out to expensive restaurants. And Chef Keith has a lot of ways to help you do that. He has an awesome podcast. He has a really great YouTube channel, and uh, right now he's got some of the coolest uh, sauces you'll ever find. Pasta. Sauces and new packaging that makes shipping a lot easier. Things like creamy basil, flame roasted red pepper, sun dried tomato, and rosemary. Uh, soon he'll be moving things over to Amazon, but for now, just go ahead and check out harvesteating.com for all of that and more. Remember, Chef Keith will help you make cooking into a life skill. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1694, because the episode is 1694. I have three from Alex Shrug today at tspwiki.com. First, a third-rate ship sinks with 10 tons of gold aboard. Uh, then I have, it's a Bank of England. It's the Bank of England. What could go wrong? And then the last one is a chapel for the Shroud of Turin. Well, the one I'm going to read for you again is, uh, a third-rate ship sinks with 10 tons of gold aboard, because I have an interesting take on this, which is drastically different from Alex's, and I like when we have different takes on the same historical event. 
The HMS Sussex is on a secret mission. The Sussex is a third-rate ship of the line, leading a convoy of over 40 warships and 166 merchantmen into the Mediterranean. Convoy protection is a normal function of the British Navy, but the Sussex is carrying its own secret cargo. Ten tons of gold coins worth over $344 million as of December 15th, uh, December 2015. The gold is destined for the Duke of Savory. As the convoy passes the Rock of Gibraltar, a sudden storm sends the HMS Sussex to the bottom. Only two sailors will survive, and the Admiral's body will wash up on shore, dressed in his nightshirt. One can only guess why gold was going to the Duke of Savory, so let's guess. The War of the Grand Alliance against the French was in progress. Savory had almost quadrupled his army and took the war to the French soil. But in 1695, the Duke signed a secret peace treaty with France. If the gold was headed to the Duke in 1694, it may have been to help with the military expenses, or maybe it was a really big bribe. But what are the chances of that? Perish the thought. When the gold went to the bottom, the Duke cut his losses and made peace. Recently, the wreck of the Sussex may have been found off the coast of Spain, but currently the exploration project has been put on hold until Spain can get guarantees that the exploration company simply won't sail off with all the treasure. It does happen. Indeed, it happened. So my take on this, again, is a little different. To me, this helps demonstrate what a terrible idea it is when some people say we should run the entire global economy based on gold reserves. Uh, I have a couple thoughts about that. One, if we actually use the gold as physical metal, this is the type of thing that can happen. Um, as uh, Alex says, this was $344 million. Now, that's, that's on gold in the $10,050, $1,100 range. A, a more historically accurate recent price of gold that would correlate better through history is about $1,500 an ounce. And if we look at it that way, then we're talking like $428 million is, is the value of this cargo that's just lost, gone. I don't know if, if you realize how much wealth that really is and what could be done with that. And it was a loss, and it probably changed the tides of history because the metal was lost. And I know what you're going to say, but today, Jack, we can just keep gold in holes in the ground uh, called vaults and move it around with electronics. Okay, so we take the gold, we dig it out of the ground, and then we put it back in the ground, and then we trade a currency that's based on a reserve of the gold that was moved from one hole to the other hole for the purpose of moving it. Okay, that makes sense. In, in, in some way, it actually does. What, does. what would that effectively do? Well, it would effectively cap the currency. So the only purpose of actually doing this, then, is to cap currency so that we can control inflation. Well, that can be done with things like algorithms, instead of just central banks that just print whenever they want to. That can be done with a cap and fractionalized model like Bitcoin. And if you think about it that way, it makes a hell of a lot more sense that we stop spending a lot of resources and money to move a heavy metal around that makes nice jewelry and doesn't really do much else. It is used in some electronic applications where it's superior to silver and what have you. But in the end, you can eat gold. If you consume too much, if it's actually toxic, then it'll kill you. Um, it, it doesn't really do anything except a few niche electronic applications that some other metal can't do as well or better. better. It, 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 and it, again, it's more of a, an adornment, a decoration. And 
using it as money doesn't make sense. And, and to make that point even a little stronger, I have a, uh, an infographic for you that I'd like you to take a look at today. And I think the most stunning part is all the gold reserves in the world represented by a single cube. And sitting next to it is a semi-truck, uh, a typical suburban home, and a B-2 bomber. And it's a pretty big, substantial chunk. It would be pretty impressive to stand and look at. But if you start thinking about what that means and how little gold there actually is, and then say, well, we're going to run an economy with a global population of 8 billion people based on that single cube, and make that single cube the store of value for the economy of the globe, you realize how stupid that actually sounds. I know it's upset some of you, but go look at the cube and then think about what you're saying. Oh, I know, we'll use gold and silver, and one will drive the other out with Gresham's Law. Oh, we'll just use silver. Okay, if we price silver at $5,000 an ounce, maybe we could run the economy sort of, kind of, with a clunky Etzel type of performance. This is thinking for a thousand years ago. We, we live in a, in a society today where really think about what I'm about to say. It was about 46 years ago that we put a man on the moon. 46 years. We're going to have our 50th anniversary of the moon landing, not too distant future. It's time that we evolve past archaic thinking and come up with a way to actually show money for what it is. It is a common agreement between members of economies to do an accounting feature for the exchange of value. The money isn't the value. The items and services exchanged are actually the value. Now, there's a lot of people with a vested interest in making sure that doesn't happen, and they love to pit people against each other, like people that are actually proponents of fractional reserve, people that are actually proponents of just basically printing money, a true fiat, and people that are proponents of things like gold. And it's beneficial to those people when we all argue about it, but it's not beneficial to those people if we all got together and actually analyzed it and decided what would be the best thing for everyone when it came to monetary creation and monetary uh, volume management. It be an interesting thing to think about, and that's my take by Jack Spierko. Next up, let's uh, remind you guys about the military, uh, military Members Support Brigade. If you want to help support this show and the work that I do, you can join the MSB. You'll get discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. You can learn more simply by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. That's all I'm going to say today because today's going to be a long show. With that in mind, it's also time for the Bob Wells Plant of the Week. Every week, Bob Wells brings us a plant that we can grow in our own backyards, and this week is no exception. This week, I have the LSU Purple Fig. The LSU Purple Fig is adaptable from Zone 7 to 9. It's a very reliable, prolific producer and, and of early to late delicious figs, one of the best figs to come along in some time. Very acclimated to the fluctuating weather of the South. Very sweet. Does not require a pollinator. And best to pick a few days after the fruit turns purple. Bob Wells Nursery specializes in edible landscape plants, including trees, fruit trees, berry plants, vine fruit, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. Find this plant more at Bob Wells Nursery. Those of you in Zone 7-8 that want to grow figs, let me tell you, give them a lot of protection in their first two years. An easy way to do this Get a piece of uh, fencing 
that's tall enough to basically make a circle around your fig tree, put it around your fig tree, fill it up with straw, light, fluffy straw. It'll create a great insulative blanket. Now do this after you get into where you're going to start getting into light frost and what have you, and the fig's going to go dormant through the, uh, and it'll protect the wood from freezing, and you won't have it die back to the ground. If you do that for a couple seasons, uh, by the third, fourth season, you have a very robust plant that even when it does freeze, it's not going to have dieback, or not going to have complete dieback, and you're going to have a much more robust, long-term, larger-frame plant if you do it that way. Uh, as far as picking them a few days after they turn purple, here's my rule for a fig. When I touch it and just kind of just move it and it falls off, it's ready. Until it does that, if I have to pull and put any force on it, it's not ready with one exception. If it feels really soft and I'm dealing in a situation where ants are becoming a problem, I'll pick them early because what will happen is before the fig's really ready, it's almost ready, and there'll be a little hole that'll form at the end of it, and ants will start mining the fig right out of that hole. And that's our biggest pest problem with figs in the uh, the North Texas area is fire ants mining the figs. So little addition there. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. As we do that, I want to talk a little bit about this method and not really how to do it because, again, that's 1684. But what the purpose of this method is and, and what you can compare it to so that we don't get caught up in too much technical drama for these types of, of, of production. Um. These are quick, simple, small batches, especially the dump and pitch ciders. They're more like cooking a steak on the grill on a Wednesday night than, say, making a fabulous full-length roasted tenderloin topped with uh, pepper and oil and, and, and soy and this amazing thing that's fit for a Mongolian warlord with ten other dishes alongside of it. Honestly, someday, guys, Neil Franklin taught me to make that. I'll have to tell you how to do it. If you want to blow people away, that is a meal that you can prepare that people will lose their minds over. But the point is, in one of those models, you're just feeding yourself a damn good meal. You paid a fair price for a decent cut of meat. You grill it, done, and you enjoy it that way. And the other, you drop 200 bucks on one of the finest cuts of meat known to man, and that's just the meat portion of the meal, you're going to spend a lot more time and effort to make sure your meal comes out in a beyond-blow-your-mind-away type of way, right? So when we're doing the stuff that we're talking about today, what we're trying to do is, with these simple quick ciders, these small meads, these fruit wines, is, one, we develop daily drinkers, something we can kick back with, enjoy an evening, or drink with buddies on the, in the garage, Watching a football game, just like making burgers or steaks on the grill. This is not go out of your way to make it the absolute blow you away best you can because you're making this in enough volume over time as you get good at it to where this is something you're going to drink when you're doing other things. This is not probably the stuff that you're going to sit down and take tasting notes with. You can. You might learn some really interesting things from that. I'm not poo-pooing that, but you're going to sit there and contemplate and search for the vanilla in the background. This is the drink, okay? Like you go down to the store and pick up a six-pack or a 12-pack, bring it home, sit down with a buddy and drink it, You know, watch the sunset, have a drink with your wife, that type of thing, okay? There are also ways to tweak a recipe, select a yeast strain, before you make large batches and invest more money into it, or to find an awesome recipe for, yes, that high-end product. The key is with the same volume of ingredients that I can make a five-gallon full run with, I can make five test batches with this method and do it in the very bottles they come in. 
And what that means is that making ciders and meads like this can either lead to full-on, badass-to-the-bone venting and cider-making and mead-making, or a path to really easy, fast daily drinkers, either bottled or kegged, or just a fun way to make and enjoy a few batches a year. That's all up to you. Just understand that this is the angle all my answers come from today. Just so those of you that are experienced brewers that are thinking he's taking shortcuts or why not go to higher quality ingredients, what I want to understand is I've been brewing beers, ciders, and making fruit wines and meads and blends of those since 1994. So that's 21 years. I've even produced a few beers that won some awards and some, some competitions. I rank my experience as a brewer of beers at 8 out of 10, mainly because I never have done full mash brewing. So that's like kind of a segment of brewing that I haven't ever entered, so I would not rank myself a 10. If I were to rank myself only on how well do you know and have executed brewing with malt extracts and specialty grains and partial mashes and hop infusions and all this other stuff, I'd say I'm as close to a 10 as you're going to get without being a pro. Okay, So I know what I'm doing there. Cider I'd rank as an 8 as well. Mainly I would keep it down to an 8 because I've never worked to proper blending with real cider apples which is something very hard to even get today. And we'll talk about that during some answers today, what that actually means and what good apple juice is and is not in relation to hard cider and why sometimes this purist attitude is actually detrimental to the production of good quality drinking ciders. I'd also give myself an 8 as a mead maker, only because I've seen what a 10 is and I'm not that. I'm just not that good. But I'm the point here isn't that I'm some awesome you know, maker of alcoholic beverages, It's more that this level of making ciders, wheat, wines, and meads doesn't qualify to me anyway for some of the higher levels of concern with producing the very best you're capable of does. Again, think of it as like you're grilling steaks or good burgers or, say, chicken versus cooking a full-on gourmet blow-you-away meal for a dinner party. A final note here on real wines, as in made from pressed grapes that are grown for the purpose of making wine. I'd rate myself a four at that. I know what to do, but it doesn't interest me, so I don't do it. Never have done it really with any zest or gusto. I have no real plans to do it, hence all the little tricks and adjustments you learn by actually doing this stuff. I have no experience with in prop the proper world of wine. And you'll hear some of that come out today with some concerns that people have about things like degassing and things like that. Okay, So I don't have anything against wine. I enjoy a glass of wine or what have you. But I can get good wines that I'm happy with for a fair price. Uh, I can't, in my view, buy good ciders, good fruit wines, and good meads in any quantity that I'm really happy with in that daily drinker model. Most of the meads that are commercially made are either really outstanding and expensive or way overly sweet, which is not to my taste, or they're just like fruit bombs that are they're being marketed at the 20-somethings for something to carry around at a Renaissance fair. It just doesn't exist. The good ciders that are out there that are actually dry and made the way that I feel a cider should be made. Understand, there's a lot of facts in brewing and venting and mead making and cider making. There's also a great deal of opinions. And when it comes to taste, it's very subjective and it's completely the opinion. So I can't find ciders that I can you know pick up for six, seven bucks a six-pack that don't taste like an apple wine cooler. I can get really nice ciders like there's one called the Mitten. And there's one called Lapinette. They're both beautiful dry ciders made very much in the French fashion. Uh, but they're like 18 bucks, 16 bucks a bottle. Okay, now I can't make a cider with, with treetop apple juice as good as Lapinette. 
But with the techniques that we've discussed here, I can get a lot closer to Lapinette using champagne yeast and motts or treetop, okay, than I can get to Lapinette by buying a product that sells in a six-pack for under 10 bucks. So I can get, if, if the, the, the sweet apple wine cooler crap that's being mass-marketed is a four and Lapinette is a 9.5 because there is better, I can do seven to seven and a half to eight with these quick dump and stir methods. And that's good enough for me. So that's where I'm coming at from this. Now, one more disclaimer as I get into this. I'm going to answer these questions, and I, with as many as came in, I don't have time to look up the things that I don't know, so I may have to just say I, I don't know, go to a forum for this, and I'll recommend where you might find that answer. And I will have to be abbre abbreviate some of the answers, and I may even technically not be correct here and there. I'm not marketing myself as an expert on this, just a guy with a lot of experience that loves to do ferments that gets a really good product in the end. That, that, that's where I'm coming from. So starting out with the very first one, can you use frozen juice concentrate for cider? The answer is absolutely yes. You can also, if you find frozen juice concentrates that qualify, we'll talk about what that means in just a second, use frozen juice concentrates as fruit additives for things like making uh, an apple fruit blend. So if you wanted to do, if you could find it, I've never seen it, but for instance, if you could find uh, black cherry or tart cherry in a fruit concentrate frozen, and you use that in conjunction with something like a cider, that could work. How you would do that would be dependent on what you're trying to do and how gutsy you want to be with it. If you took uh, a gallon of cider and, and of, of apple juice and dumped off just enough to uh, to fit the, the, the one package of juice concentrate into it, you'd blow the sugar through the roof. You'd end up with a very high alcohol. And depending on the fruit, you might end up with kind of a fruit bomb effect. Um, and that may not be what you want to do. Generally, when I use fruit concentrates... To make uh, a sizer, for instance, or a fruit wine, I use an, the, the amount of water recommended to, to render it back to juice. Now, the reason it's absolutely okay to do, as long as there's no, if you see potassium sorbate, potassium metasulfate, to stabilize those words on the ingredients, not okay. If the only thing is 100% juice and is a preservative absorbic acid, which is vitamin C, then you can use it. Um, so th th that's it. And the reason we know that's okay is most of the juices we buy in jugs to make cider out of just plain Jane apple juice, if you read on it, it's just from concentrate. Now here's where you get into this world of what are you really getting? So I was at the store and I saw this, this blackberry juice, uh, from some manufacturer. I don't remember who it was. It may have been ocean spray. That's all I said. Blackberry juice. Huh? 100% juice. Huh? So I pull it down, first thing I look for the ingredients. And I'm, what I'm looking for, obviously, is is there any kind of preservative stabilizer in it? No, it's fine. Except, ingredients. Grape juice concentrate was the first ingredient. And there's like five other juices in there before blackberry. Now, I don't know what that's going to do, but I'm not going to use it as blackberry juice. I might fart around and throw it in there and see what happens. And again, that's why I love this make a gallon, put it in a few bottles, Carbonate those bottles, taste it, do you like it, do you think it sucks, don't do that again, do do that again, or do that again and make the next adjustment. That's, that's what we're looking to accomplish here. So 
Yes, you can use juice concentrate. You can also use it for back sweetening, but I'll talk about that when we get to a question about it. Okay, this next question is a series of questions. What is the best tasting sweetener to use to make cider carbonated, second ferment? Do I place it in a storage bottle before the second ferment? Will flip-top bottles work to store fermented liquids? See picture of kombucha in a flip-top bottle. And in the picture of the kombucha in the uh, flip-top bottle is all foaming out of it, and that's probably because kombucha is an active ferment that's continuing to go, and if you c control it, eventually when you open it, pff, it gushes. And gushing can happen when we're carbonating uh, with bottle conditioning in this world. The best tasting sweetener. When you are doing carbonation with bottle conditioning, which means we add a little bit of sugar uh, and we cap the bottle, however the bottle is going to be capped, depending on what kind of bottle it is, with the fermentation restart, the yeast that's, that's still in there and still alive kind of wakes back up and goes, ooh, sugar, num, 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 starts eating it. And it, 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 it basically produces alcohol and CO2 as byproducts. You can actually literally think of it, it poops them both out. Okay, so the little kind of alcohol that gets boosted, insignificant to the whole. And I tell you the quantities here, it, that'll start to make sense. Um, and then the CO2 now starts rising to the top of the bottle, and it'll, it'll even if it was really clear when you bottled it, it'll, it'll cloud up a little bit. And generally, if you, you know, it's really exciting because you have it in your bottle. You take your bottle down and look at it every day and hold it up to the light, and then the first, next day it's just like cloudy. And then the next day, usually, it just starts to clear a little bit at the very top. And you watch it slowly clear out. By the time it clears out, it's probably done carbonating. The yeast is used with little oxygens available. And it's taken up that sugar and has is, is, is done its job and went, nothing left here and either dies or goes dormant and falls to the bottom of sediment. And that's it. That's how you do it. Can you use flip-top bottles? If you look in today's uh, show notes, 32-ounce flip-top growlers are my favorite bottle for bottling. They hold about three glasses, three full glasses of cider, beer, mead, wine, whatever. That means I can have a glass and a half with a, with a friend. That means if there's three people, everybody can have a glass, and it shortens my time to bottle. I hate bottling. It is the one thing I don't like about all of this. So if I'm going to do it, I want the biggest bottle I can that's reasonable. So I buy heavy 32-ounce growlers, and I bottle in those. And yes, they work just fine. And the little rubber gaskets, about every fifth bottling should be thrown away. So you just buy a box of them and just you know kind of keep an eye on your bottles and know how many times you've used that batch and, and redo it. When you make a gallon, you never end up with a gallon. And what you end up with is about three and a half bottles from a gallon. So with that last bottle, there's a lot of things you can do with it. One, you can go ahead and maybe get yourself a couple smaller growlers, and then you can, you're going to use maybe one 12-ounce bottle to go with those. So get some 12-, 14-ounce growler-style bottles and bottle in those and set that aside. That's your, that's your reward. That's your first test. Right? So if you open it up, it really isn't done yet. You really think it needs to age. You've only opened up a small batch. Another thing you can do with it, and this is where I'm going to say there's going to be some experienced people who go, grumble, grice. What I'll do is I'll sanitize a ball jar, you know, a, a ball jar for, you know, canning, and I'll put that extra in there, and I'll put a lid on it that's also sanitized, and I'll mark what it is, and I'll stick it in the refrigerator. Usually, if I have a batch that was pretty full to the top, 
I can use what was left from one to make one more big bottle and get four out of it. Now, if it's drastically different, I won't do it. But if I've done things and maybe I have one that was done with a different yeast, but they're similar yeast, similar flavor profiles, and it just makes one more bottle, I'll mark it differently when I label the bottle, put it in there, stick it in, done. Um, so you have to put the sugar in at the time that you bottle it, or none of that stuff happens. If you just put it in a secondary fermenter, add more sugar and wait, the yeast is going to eat it all up and settle out again. It's called stage fermentation if we do that. But here's the quantities. In a 12-ounce beer bottle, if you're using those, a half a teaspoon of sugar. As you can see, the flavor, etc., is irrelevant. About three, one half to three quarters of a cup of sugar to five gallon batches, depending on what you're doing and where you're going for it. Again, consult forums and recipe guides to get more accurate. What most people use is corn sugar. It kind of looks like it's powdered. Supposedly, it finishes a little cleaner and what have you. If you are boosting alcohol in a beer with pure sugar, it does seem that it's less off-putting than using something like, especially in a lighter beer, table sugar, which can be a little bit cidery. But first, you're making a cider. Not really worried about that. Um, but when it comes to carbonating, you can carbonate with anything. You can carbonate with honey. Uh, you can carbonate with sugar cubes. They make sugar cubes that are a half a teaspoon. And so you get a bottle, you pop one in. If it's a 12-ounce bottle, if it's a 22-ounce bottle, you pop two in. If it's a 32-ounce bottle, you pop three in and you bottle. So that's kind of, I'm trying to do this stuff in the lazy man's way. I'm trying to do things like, I'll make a five, I'll make a six gallon batch. Cause I have a six gallon, uh, big mouth bubbler, actually six and a half gallon. So make a, formulate up to six and a half gallons. You'll lose a half a gallon by the time you're done racking, et cetera. You have six gallons left. Five gallon goes in a keg and I still have a gallon to put in bottles. So that's, yeah, hopefully that kind of answers that one. This one came in from a lot of people. Real quick question about home brewing cider. Would using standard bread yeast from the grocery store work? I imagine using specialized brewing yeast would be optional, optimal, but was curious if using an off-the-shelf yeast would give me something that's at least drinkable. I've ordered some champagne yeast online, but I'm anxious to get a batch started today. Thanks for all you do, Paul. Well, Paul, you can. Um, if you go to Homebrew Talk and look up bread yeast, you'll see a lot of people have done some pretty amazing things using bread yeast. In the end, yeast is not just yeast, but in the end, yeast is yeast. How does that go the same way? Well, yeast have different flavor profiles, different optimum fermentation temperatures, different characteristics. For instance, if you go into the world of beer, lager yeast settle to the bottom and ferment from the bottom. Ale yeast ferment from the top. Just about all the wine, champagne yeast, things that we use for ciders that I know of are top fermenting yeast. Uh, some get produce a lot of esters and flavors that can be off flavors or enjoyable flavors depending on who you are at warmer temperatures. Some are more clean fermenting even at warmer temperatures. Some crap out at lower temperatures. But in the end, it's all about getting the sugar converted into alcohol and then all the flavors produced or stripped out are byproducts of the yeast. I read a recipe by a very well-known mead maker on Homebrew Talk that makes a mead where all you do is use honey, and water, and oranges, I think. This was uh, ancient orange mead is what you can look up to find it. If you put ancient orange mead in, you will find it. And he uses bread yeast, and it never racks to a secondary fermenter, never takes it off. He leaves it alone until it clears. And he says it's fantastic. And uh, from, from the guy's reputation, how many people have cloned it, it seems like it would probably be the case. So you can. However, being in a hurry... 
I'd recommend that you make your first batches with known quantities of yeast and give them a try. And if nothing else, go ahead and make a gallon. With, see, the thing right now. Take a gallon of apple juice, dump a little out to make some headspace, and you don't need much headspace unless you're adding fruit or herbs or something that's going to make like a big plug at the top. When you're using champagne yeast and wine yeast and stuff and fruit juice or honey and water for mead, your fermentations are very gentle. They don't foam up like beer. And a lot of guys that have been writing me that have done a lot of beer are like, I don't know what's going on. It's bubbling like crazy, but there's no big foamy head. There won't be. It's gentle fermentation. You can leave about an inch off the top, so all you have to remove and it will be plenty of headspace for you. Though, I've seen some pictures of some of you guys using balloons, and you got these balloons that are like as big as like a, a, a dog's head, huge balloons. You might want to pull the side of that and vent those balloons when they get that big a little bit. Let a little bit of that CO2 out of there. Uh, you must have some robust industrial balloons that are holding that much, because mine blow up to about the size of a baseball, and when you touch them, you can hear them vent a little bit out the sides. So... I'm um, not sure what's causing that with some of you guys, but you can vent some of that CO2 off just as a side note. Um, but what I would do then is do one with bread yeast. Do one with champagne yeast. Do one with a, uh, an ale yeast. Do, you know, get five gallons of apple juice and do nothing the first time except use different yeasts. And then taste them side by side. When you bottle them, taste them still. Make notes. And then when you taste them carbonated, you'll, you'll be blown away at the difference when something's carbonated. More things come out of it, what have you. So you can do it, but use the, the concept here to, to make it productive if you do so. As we go to the next one real quick, I did check into that mead recipe using bread yeast. It's called Joe's Ancient Orange Meat. I did look it up at Homebrew Talk and put a link in the show notes. Next one, this comes from Chris. Chris says, no bubbles but cloudy and stinky. After the cider show, I promptly went home and bought some apple juice. Two days later, stopped by the local homebrew supply and purchased two kinds of yeast in Red Star Packets. The homebrew employee tells me one is good for five gallons. Since I'm only doing half-gallon batch, I used a quarter teaspoon and a half a cup of warm, hot tap water and let sit for five, ten minutes. Pour each into a half gallon and cap with airlock and place them in the pantry, 65 to 70 degrees. I used three different brands of juice, all only containing juice and absorbic acid. After a week, little or no action. I add more yeast. A week later, still nothing. I go all in with an entire packet in two of the batches, still nothing. They smell yeasty and remain cloudy. I've read online there could be no aggressive off-gassing when using this method, but it doesn't seem to be the case based off of what I've seen posted in the TSP community. What have I done wrong? Too cold, bad yeast. Please help. I can't handle another bottle of Angry Orchard Crisp. Um, I don't know for sure what's going on. Um, if you told me to use one brand of juice, I'd say there's a preservative in there. I don't think there is. You said that you used warm-slash-hot tap water. I don't know how hot your tap water can get, but we should be rehydrating yeast at about 100 to 110 degrees, okay, our dry yeast. If you rehydrated your yeast at 130 to 140 degrees, you could have, especially if you left it for quite a while, pasteurized it. If you let it sit for more than a half hour to an hour, sometimes they say you could starve, starve yeast to death in the rehydration process, though I've never seen it actually happen. You say it's 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 cloudy and stinky, and I'm not sure if you're just seeing fermentation and not recognizing it if you're used to beer. Again, you'll get lots of little fine bubbles, bubble, 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 but you won't get a big foamy head. So it, it, it could be that it bubbled and you just don't recognize it as bubbling, but it doesn't sound like that. 
Um, I would go to Homebrew Talk and ask about this, honestly. I can't say this has ever happened to me, ever, in anything I've ever pitched yeast into. And while it is a good um, a good thing to rehydrate your yeast, I have to admit, I've done plenty of batches of ciders, meads, beers, where I've taken the packet, cut the top off, and sprinkle it on top of the, the straight-in dry on the fermenter, and figured, hey, it'll rehydrate right there. And it usually works just fine. Um, another thing, I... I don't believe in measuring out quantities of yeast from these little packets. The most I'll do if I'm doing two gallons and I want to use the same yeast is I'll split a packet between the two. Generally, I, I um, am going to use a full packet. It's a dollar. It's a dollar. If I'm doing five gallons that it's formulated for, I use a packet. If I'm using a six and a half, I still use a packet. It's plenty. If I'm doing a gallon, I use a packet. And I think that you get a lot less opportunity to contaminate things that way because you're doing less with it. Um, obviously, if you're using bread yeast, you do have to measure out a certain amount of quantity to do that. But with these packets, I dump it in. The other thing, and it shouldn't matter, because I've done very small fermentations before. For instance, I've taken a bottle of Chimay and mixed up some malt extract and water and left an ounce of uh, beer that's got you know bottle-conditioned yeast, which is a Belgian yeast strain that I wanted to cultivate, Filled that bottle three quarters up, put an airlock in it, and then a week later pitched that as a yeast starter. And that's worked just fine. But that's smaller than I've ever done as a, as a cider. I've never done a half gallon. So uh, I'm going to say give it another shot. Try going with a gallon. Um, make sure you're not putting too hot of a, of a hydration on your yeast if you're going to do uh, a, you know, um, a rehydration with your yeast. And... Uh, Make sure the temperature is 60 to 65 to 70 degrees. That's a bit on the low side, down into the 65. If it's like 58 in there and you think it's 65, you could have very poor to even having some yeast just shut down and quit at that temperature. The next question we've kind of covered already, but there is one important aspect of it that, that may be helpful to, to cover. It's about bottle conditioning to achieve carbonation. We covered that. But it says, should I wait until fermentation is complete? Yes. And add a little sugar before bottling? Yes. Or cold crash when fermentation is almost complete to clarify the cider, then bottle, allowing the remaining fermentation to carbonate the cider. Don't do that. It, unless you get really studious uh, and really exact with your hydrometer and, and your specific gravity measurements and get all the math right, you're either going to under or over carbonate, including maybe having a bottle break or the top blow off it or something like that. Uh, and more likely with these, these small batch, quick fermentable, not lots of residual extra sugars and things like that, you're going to get under carbonation. Okay, so, so there's that. If you want a cold crash to help clarity, It is actually really effective to make a lot of that yeast sediment out. You can take your fermenter, throw it in the refrigerator for a couple days. I'd recommend that you've racked at least once if you're going to do that, which means you go from one fermentation vessel to another. If it's going to be short-term, plastic is fine for the secondary. If it's going to be long-term, you should go to glass. Um, and then you can cold crash it. Then siphon it out into your bottling bucket or your bottling vessel, however you're going to bottle, and then bottle from there. That way you don't stir up the sediment that has crashed out while you're doing it. Here's the deal. You've really knocked a lot of the yeast completely out of suspension. It's most probable that 
adding some sugar, either to the bottle or batch priming is what it's called when you add sugar straight to your, your liquid before you bottle. And I, I like to do that with five-gallon batches. I generally don't do it with small batches. It's just it's a hassle for no reason. There's probably enough yeast alive in there that's still in suspension to get things going again. What a lot of people will do, and I can't fault them for it, is, is take a small amount of yeast uh, of the same variety. This is where I would measure it out. You're talking maybe a half a teaspoon of yeast into one, a one-gallon fermenter, and then start your siphon in, and, and so put it in first so that it kind of gets stirred up just by the siphoning action. Yes, that's going to be cloudy. Yes, that's going to get things going again, but that's how priming happens anyway. And then go ahead and bottle your, your, your product, whatever it is, whether it's a sparkling mead, sparkling champagne, champagne uh, fruit wine, melon, whatever it is. And what that'll do is make sure there's enough viable yeast in suspension to give you your bottle conditioning. The other thing you should know about bottle conditioning is you can do it in too cold of an environment. Let's say it's this time of year. It's nice and cold out in your garage. Nice, great place. It doesn't freeze, but it's cold. Nice, great place to age it. You give it two to three weeks to bottle condition in the warm environment first before you move it into that cool environment because just like we can kill our fermentation in our main vessel, we can certainly kill in our bottle and then we will have a still beverage instead of a carbonated one or an undercarbonated one. So I wanted to go ahead and cover at least that there. Okay, a lot of people have asked about methanol and it's just not even a concern. We've covered this at length with Stephen Harris, same person that asked the last question, asked this one, and specifically asked, what, what about methanol and something like Applejack? Okay, what I'm about to tell you is for information purposes only, technically this is illegal in the United States of America, and considered a method of fortification or distillation, though I don't know that anybody would know that you did it if you did, uh, because he says specifically an Applejack. So what is Applejack? Well... The way, and this was really a, a big-time British product, the British would make hard ciders in the fall, and they would take their best like quick ciders that came out okay to drink, and they would go ahead and use those, and they would maybe fill a big, giant barrel of a cider that was a little bit, eh, not quite what you're looking for. You set that out in the barn, and it starts to freeze, and you skim the ice off. And you go out there every day and skim the ice off, skim the ice off, skim the ice off. Well, what freezes is the water. A lot of the residual sugars, residual flavor components, and the alcohol freezes at much colder temperatures than the water. And by daily taking the ice off, it takes more and more cold to freeze it, and you can see what happens here. As the winter progresses and it gets colder and colder and colder, the alcohol is coming up higher and higher, so it's taking more and more cold to actually get more and more to freeze. And then by spring, you have this barrel that's basically a quarter full or less, and it's apple brandy or apple whiskey, however you want to look at it. And the concern is since methanol is a byproduct of fermentation and there's a little bit of methanol in every alcoholic beverage, if we then go through some sort of distillation, ice removal process, is there going to be enough methanol in there that I'm going to go blind, uh, see uh, werewolves, howl at the moon, fall over dead? And the answer is absolutely effing not. Okay, when we talked about doing actual distillation uh, for the purpose of making fuel, in air quotes like Dr. Evil, fuel, um, and he said you could drink it even though you're not supposed to, um, that question came up a lot with Steve. And the answer is when you make a distillation, even a high-proof distillation, 190 proof like grain alcohol, uh, and unless you're an idiot, you dilute it down, let's say 100 proof, uh, 80 proof with distilled water. If you left all the methanol in there, 
Even at that point, it's not enough to do. You're going to give yourself alcohol poisoning before you have problems from the small amount of methanol that's in there. When we do distillation, actual distillation, where we're using heat to cook the alcohol off, we're going to backwards. Instead of removing the water, we're letting the alcohol go through the still and, and, and drip out the other end. When that starts, the very first little bit that comes out, we call the heads in the world of moonshine. And there's a lot of methanol per volume in the heads. So generally what happens is to increase the quality of the overall product, not to protect somebody from dying, you take that first little bit that comes out and how much depends on how much you're distilling, and I won't get into that, and you discard it. And then you run that to a certain point of proof, and then the last little bit that comes out the tail is you let that go. Uh, where some people actually repitch the tails because they believe it makes a more flavorful product when you're doing pot distillation, more of a corn whiskey type thing. But in, in general, we're making a vodka. We want the heads out and the tails out for the quality of the product. If we were to collect just the heads from 50 gallons of alcohol making and, and just take those heads and put them in a jar and drink that, we could probably do some serious harm to ourselves because that's mostly methanol. But we'd have to concentrate it in some way like that to make that happen. So these stories of like methanol poisoning from prohibition, well, what happened is you get greedy, greedy bootleggers. They don't want to throw those heads away, and they're bottling straight out of the still. And they're running a 40, 50, 80-gallon, 100-gallon pot still. If you bottle a couple bottles out of the front end of that and don't blend it back in, because John Law's after you, you're lazy, you don't give a shit, you're putting out some serious, serious levels of methanol in those bottles. Making Applejack, make, and there's a bunch of people asking about methanol in just making all of this stuff without any type of distillation. It doesn't matter. If it did, every home brewer, home winemaker, home mead maker on planet Earth would already be dead. Don't worry about it. You will harm yourself with too much alcohol before you're ever going to have to worry about methanol. You'll give yourself alcohol poisoning and be dead in the hospital or in the morgue before you end up giving yourself problems with methanol by any of these methods. Next one's a really great resource for people trying to learn more about different strains of yeast. This comes from John on the blog. It says, not so much a question, but I've had a lot of fun following these experiments over the years. It's a, it's a, a thread on homebrew talk. And uh, the first picture is about 40 gallons of apple juice being fermented in one-gallon jugs with airlocks stubbed in them uh, to find out about all these different yeasts. And uh, what you'll notice is he doesn't – I haven't dug deep into this post or its follow-ups, but in the initial report, the only Red Star yeast that he mentions is one he says he wouldn't use again, and it's Cote de Blanc. And I've never actually used that yeast. He mentions Lavalin 1118, which is a go-to yeast for cider and meads, as one he probably would use again, but not his favorite. And almost all the yeasts that he mentions that he would definitely use again are actually ale yeasts. And this is making apple ciders. Uh, and they're Nottingham Safale 04, which I love that yeast for making beer. Uh, Saflogger S23, which I've never used, and Safale US 05. 04 is more like an English ale yeast, and 05 from Safale is more like a British ale yeast. Um, I actually am making a, a sizer with that just to play around with it. Um, but those are both good yeasts. They're actually quite a bit expensive compared to champagne yeast from Lavalin and Red Star, though. But this is a great thread. He's got an updated thread I haven't even looked at yet. You can link off to from there where he's done more experimentation. I think there's like 50 pages of comments here. So 101 pages of comments. This thing's been running for years. And uh, so it's a great way to find out what other people think about yeast. Because there's going to be some more questions today that I'll kind of gloss over and just handle here. 
what is the best yeast to use to make cider, to make mead, to make... And the answer is I don't know. There's no way I could possibly know that because the answer involves a couple things. What do you like? What are you trying to accomplish? And, and, and those two things are very subjective. So I like to use champagne yeast, and champagne yeast strip a lot of flavor. They go very fast. They leave almost no residual sugar. You end up with a very dry product. The remaining flavor components are in the background, and I love that in a cider. I love that in a mead. I don't like stuff to be sweet. If I want more of a, of a fruit flavor, but I still want dry, I go to more of a red wine yeast, because a red wine yeast will strip out less flavor. If I want to go somewhere in the middle, I want to leave a little more fruit flavor, but I still want to be very, very dry and not quite as much fruit. Maybe I'm working with something like blackberry, and I'm afraid if I leave too much of it, it'll overpower the total uh, thing. Then I'm going to go to like a white wine yeast, um, like a Pasteur Blanc or something like that. Um, but again, this is the whole point of what we're doing. You need to try... Taking five jugs of apple juice, make five different with five different yeast, try them all side by side, decide what you like. Go somewhere with a, a, an ale yeast. Go somewhere with a what's considered a a, a, a more residual sweetness yeast. Go and, and try all these different things, and that'll make sense to you as we continue on through these questions today. Why you might want to get that underlying product more to your liking than trying things like back sweetening. The next question says, more of a beer question, but does it do any harm to let a batch sit in the primary fermenter longer than fermentation time, two to three months? Um, maybe. Here's the deal with that. When you, because you're talking primary, not secondary here. So your first fermenter, you put something in there, and fermentation stops. And there's this huge cake of either yeast cake or lees or trube, depending on what we're, what we're doing, what it gets called. But all of the stuff that's the waste product of the yeast, the, the waste product of the fermentation, and mostly dead yeast cells laying there at the bottom. And at a certain point, you really want to get your ferment off of that cake and into a secondary for longer aging periods. Would I worry if I just made a brand new batch of beer or cider or anything else, it was in the, the, the primary fermenter, and I had to leave for a month? No. Uh, I don't ha I, it's been in there a month. It's done. I really should do it. I have to leave for a month. Uh, I don't really have time to secondary rack it right now. Would I leave for a month? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I wouldn't worry about it, but it wouldn't be my number one choice in the world. If I had the time, I'd want to get into a secondary. The biggest thing you have to do if you're going to leave something alone for an extended period of time is make sure you or somebody else keeps an eye on that airlock. Because if all the water evaporates out of that airlock, then you have an open fermentation at the worst time possible, probably. When you're, like, some people I think get li literally over the top worried about sanitation and all when it comes to your primary fermentation. When that yeast is is cooking in your must or your wort or whatever it is you're making and it's going a gazillion miles an hour and you put about a gazillion yeast cells in there when you pitch the yeast and it took up everything and it started going it's overpowering everything there's not much oxygen that's going to get in that container because it's pumping out co2 like mad even if it had a, a an open fermentation with a rag over it at that point Since CO2 weighs more than air, there's going to be a blanket of CO2 that acts as a, as, a, as a covering of it, and it's just going like crazy. When that stops, just a breeze can blow off a little bit of CO2 that's sitting there, and now you got oxygen. 
And now you got wild yeast, and now you got lactobacillus, and all kinds of things. So it's more about making sure that airlock stays full. Now, here's my rules. If I'm going to have it sit in a container for more than 60 days, I'm going to put it in glass. If it's less than 60 days, I'm fine with plastic. If I'm going to higher alcohols, when I start making stuff that's going to 12%, 14%, then when I come out of the primary and go to a secondary fermenter, even if I think it's only going to be another 30 days, I'm going to glass. When I'm doing these ciders, though, these dump and stir ciders, so to speak, I don't even worry about glass. It's not going to be in there long enough. I mean, 30 days is plenty of time for most of these things to finish out. You start adding honey, and the world changes a little bit. Honey takes is more complex. It's got more things going on. It takes longer to develop. But when you're doing basically sugar fruit, ju and fruit juices, you put that in there, you go 30 days, I'll rack it to a secondary for one week, maybe two if I don't get time to bottle it or, or, or deal with it. All I'm doing when I put it in that secondary is letting a little bit more of the suspended yeast flocculate out. I know when I rack it, I'm going to stir a little bit up. And I, I'm, what I'm trying to do is get a really clear product. If I'm going to age it in the secondary, I'm going in glass. Okay, But most beers, wines, meads, ciders, all of that, aging is a wonderful thing. If you have the patience for it, go for it. But you're going to be more than two months, get it in the glass. Now, two caveats. Joe's Ancient Orange Mead. Made in a single fermenter, sits in there for months and months and months till it clears. Never touch it, never rack it, leave it alone. Comes out beautifully. It's also a mead. It's higher alcohol. It's really designed to mature. Meads are designed to mature over time. Or I would say not even designed. Meads naturally mature over time. Beers are actually, most of your beers are really good fresh. Now, if you're making a big Abbey Ale or a big IPA with a, with a real alcohol kick or something that's got some oak added to it, and, or something that's really complex, a barley wine, uh, an imperial stout, these things age beautifully. But if you're making a British brown ale, if you're making an American hopped you know, red ale or something like that, I mean, in two months, I've probably got the first bottle down, at least. Uh, I make a lot of like brown ales that are two weeks in the fermenter. I, 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 say, I should say I used to. I, I'm not... Beers I've really gotten out of with paleo and then the ease of doing what we're talking about today. But, I mean, I've done brown ales 14 days in the fermenter, seven days in a, in a secondary just to clear them up a little bit. A lot of times I don't even do that. I've done brown ales 14 days in a primary, rack straight into a keg, uh, put it in the cooler, let it cool down, hook it up to the beer line, uh, put it on 15 PSI, wait a week, and I'm drinking it. So, and they're, you know, beers when they're made like that, like quaffing beers, generally actually don't age really well. They don't age poorly, they just don't get that much better with age. So think a little differently with beer. Next question, how do I rack off cider with fruit that's been added to it? I started two batches of cider and one of mead last weekend. I added about two cups of cherries, brought up to 150 degrees to one of the ciders. Right now, day three, All the fruit's floating on top. Will this sink once it starts to clear, or will I have to siphon around them? Below is a picture of my brewery, ripe balloon, uh, plain cider, red uh, red cherry cider, and yellow is mead with cinnamon sticks. Thanks for all you do, Guy Whalen. Well, first of all, Guy, that uh, red balloon in the center there, that you were one of the people I was talking about that may want to do a little venting there. Uh, next little piece of advice. Um Your meat will probably be fine, but I tend to do things like herbs, especially cinnamon and things like that. 
in a secondary fermenter with meads, though right now I'm making a methylogen, which is basically what you have there, uh, that's made with chamomile, uh, elderflower, and um, heather flowers, that I did exactly what you did. So it's fine, but a lot of times you uh, certain things kind of go better in a secondary fermenter. Now, um, how do you rack off fruit? You just do it. You don't, you don't worry about it. And I really recommend a racking cane. Really, 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 really infinity recommend you use a racking cane, not just stub a hose down to the bottom and suck on it and, 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 and put your thumb over it and, and, and get it going that way. Racking canes have a little thing that snaps on the bottom that keeps them up out of the sediment. And you, the self-siphoning ones are best. You, you put that thing in there. Usually this is a good time to have a second set of hands. Somebody just to hold the other end with your bottling wand. Or if you're just, if you're just racking it, you put it into the bottom of your fermenter. Pump it once or twice and it goes. You can take your hands off and watch it flow like magic. Almost like physics is at work. And I am one that I don't like to lose a lot of stuff. So as it starts to get toward the bottom, I'll generally take that fermenter, whatever it was fermenting in, and tip it back to the corner that the racking cane is. Try to get every little bit. And when I start to see any milky color go in there, I pick it up and kill the siphon. And then yeah, I'm greedy, man. I hold it up in the air and I, I pull that tube off of the racking cane and I make sure that every drop comes out of that hose. I don't want to lose any more than I have to. And, uh, and that's it. Will your fruit sink? Most of the time it won't. Most of it will remain floating. It won't matter. Stick the racking cane in and, and, and rack. Uh, will some of it sink? Possibly. It won't matter. There's plenty of other stuff down there, leaves and what have you. So it's just not really a concern. I would recommend those of you that ferment on fruit in your primary, within 30 days, get it into your uh, a secondary fermenter. Uh, go ahead and take it away from contact with that fruit. Now, a lot of people put fruit in the secondary. You can do that. My view is when you when you put fruit in the primary, especially if it's been hit with heat or what have you, um, there may be some potential eventually for that fruit to be worked on long enough to extract some off flavors, especially those of you that are pitching some citrus or whatever with the white pith. You get bitterness and stuff like that there. So I, I recommend getting your stuff off of whole fruit at about the 30- to 40-day period most go into a secondary fermenter and let it finish up. Uh, but that's again, that's an opinion. That's not a hard rule. Now, here's something to me that is a hard rule. If you're fermenting on fruit, absolutely, 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 absolutely rack to a secondary, even if it's done, if it's looking clear and beautiful and whatever, but it's still on fruit, rack to a secondary, give it a few days to clear up even more, let anything settle out, and then bottle or keg. Because that you're, you're going to probably drag a little bit more stuff along and a second rack and then moving to a bottle bucket before it goes into a keg or a bottle will help you leave as much sediment behind as possible. Next one's an interesting question, and it's the I don't know sort of category. It comes from Rob. Rob says, enjoyed your show on ciders and meads. was wondering if there were other uses for ciders and meads besides regular consumption, such as medicinal use, etc. Meads were, and I know this from a new book, and I'm going to have the author on. Uh, it's called Make Mead Like a Viking, uh, and it's from Chelsea Green Press. And uh, I'm going to have that author on in the first part of next year. Meads were very traditionally used as medicines as well, based on the herbs that were used in them. Some of the herbs that were used in them for medicinal purposes and or uh, euphoric uh, flights of fancy, so to speak, um, are actually considered quite dangerous, especially if you used in excess and you really have to know what you're doing with them. 
But meads definitely, with the use of herbs, uh, have been used for medicine. And not just medicine for acute illnesses, but to tonifying medicines. And my understanding is many of the attributes of herbs that make them valuable as medicinals are enhanced when they take part in the fermentation process. But I can't prove that. I'm not making that as an absolute factual claim. I'm saying that I've read anecdotal accounts that make that claim. Ciders, I've never read it. I've never heard it. I've never even heard it mentioned in passing, though it's probably got some kind of uh, truth to it in the past. I would say that Any herb that's that's of medicinal quality that's used in the production of cider would probably do that to some degree, though herbed ciders isn't something I've heard a lot of happening. There's no there's no thing that is like the herb cider category that I know of. Whereas with meads, there's an entire category, a subcategory of mead called methylogen, that's adding spices and herbs to meads. So uh, it has much more of a historical context there. But that's all I can tell you about that one. Those cinnamon and vanilla go really great in hard ciders. But I'm going to tell you, with cider especially, I really recommend that you do your cinnamon, vanilla-type things in your secondary fermenter. And you can even do it this way. Make a very concentrated cinnamon tea uh, and add that when you, when you go to your secondary. And I think you'll get better results than just throwing sticks in it. For vanilla in ciders, I actually prefer to use a, a true, authentic, 100% pure, real vanilla extract, not imitation. And I like to do it at bottle or keg time. Uh, it just seems more fresh and up front to the nose that way. And it's something you can experiment with with volumes by, you know, get yourself a glass and get a, get a dropper and add a drop and give it a little stir and give it a taste. And, you know, once you figure out, oh, that's what really works with this, okay, Then you can calculate that up to the total size of your recipe. Um, you guys that are really interested in doing a lot of fruit flavorings, I wanted to let you know there is a really great alternative to actual fruit, fruit juices, etc., that gives you more of the fruit bomb flavor without it going over the top sweetness as opposed to back sweetening or fermenting out your fruit juices. When you ferment out a fruit juice, you take all the sugar with it and quite a bit of the flavors either change or get stripped out as well. Uh, these are made by a company called L.D. Carson under the, the, the trade name of Brewer's Best. Uh, they make it in apple. They, cause you, so you could apple up that dry apple cider without sweetening it, okay, with apple extract. They make it in blackberry, raspberry, strawberry. Strawberry apple cider is, God, is that wonderful. That's a springtime drink to me. It's not something I want on a cold fall day, but, man, that's just amazing. Um, They're available online. Almost every homebrew and home winemaking shop on the planet sells them. There's no sugar to them all. They're pure flavor. Uh, they're four ounces, and four ounces is generally considered the right amount to use for five gallons. So you can just do a little math and figure out how much you would use to a gallon. And if you think about the ease of this stuff, you could make up, if you have a kegerator like I do that can run four kegs at the same time, You could make up four or five-gallon batches of dump and stir apple cider. And on kegging day, you could jump a bottle of blackberry in one, a bottle of apple just to kick the apple in one, a strawberry, and uh, a cherry. And you'd have four different ciders on, on tap. They're not going to be really colored. Like, the cherry has some color to it, but not that much, uh, like a color cider. But it's, it's really a great way to do things, and it's fun to experiment with. We do this at a lot of our beer tastings and, and, and cider and wine tastings. We'll, we'll break out little bottles of this stuff, and you let people just want a small, like a small tasting glass, like a shot glass size, and you're pouring it. So you take a toothpick, 
and you just dip it into the extract and you swizzle that toothpick in there and it flavors it like crazy at that small volume because it's so concentrated. And you can do testing like that and figure out what you want and you have control over how much you use and you can do it at bottling time. So another little tip I wanted to throw in there. Um, how does one go about making uh, ginger beer or a cider with a ginger adjunct? Well, a ginger beer, you'd make it, it to really bring the ginger forward in a beer. You'd want to use a really delicate hop, something like Fugles, maybe an ounce to a five-gallon batch of like 4.5% Fugles. Just a little bit of bitterness there, but you still want to leave some residual sweetness. Light malt extract, seven pounds to five gallons. And uh, I'd say start your ginger experience at around one ounce of ginger to a gallon. So if we were going to take that and make a one-gallon cider, we'd shred up a gallon of ginger, and we would pitch that either into our secondary or our primary. With a cider, since it's going to go fast, I would put the ginger right into your primary fermenter, about an ounce of shredded ginger, and just let fermentation help extract the flavor of ginger. The thing is, you could taste that. You could taste that. And if you said to yourself, Self, I just wish there was more ginger flavor here, you could do a couple different things. One, you could make a small amount of very intensely uh, infused ginger tea. So take maybe a French press, grate up another ounce of ginger, and take just enough water to cover it a little bit. And then put your French press down. You could do this without a French press. You could do it in a cup or a bowl. This is just making a really clean process for dumping it in your fermenter. And uh, just... Push the French press, let's just got all of it held under water, and wait about 20 minutes for that boiling water temperature to extract all the ginger goodness and to cool down. Press your, your, your ginger press down, maybe set it in the refrigerator a couple minutes so you're not hot shocking anything. And on the day, and on either when you're racking and you've decided there's not enough, or when you're bottling or kegging, spike it with that little bit of ginger. If you don't mind adding a little bit of alcohol, you could make an alcohol-based ginger extract. Shred up some ginger, put it in a, a small mason jar, let's say a half-pint jar, half full of ginger, fill it to the top with grain alcohol, put the lid back on it, maybe you can go ahead and make a quart of this. This could be some good stuff. You could use grain alcohol if you really want to kind of dance with the wind a little bit, but it's not going to move the alcohol content of your final product much, but 100-proof vodka would be fine for this. Strain it into another thing, add a little bit, taste it. Add a little bit, taste it. When it's where you want it, you're good to go. And you can make extracts of vanilla this way too on your own. Um, traditional, good way to make uh, uh, vanilla extract is with Kentucky bourbon, by the way. Uh, but that's going to add another flavor that could be interesting. Again, technically, as stupid as this is, what I'm telling you is illegal. Because you're fortifying a fermented beverage. What is retarded about it, absolutely, and again, do you think that the, the government has time to come inspect your home-brewed bottle of mead sitting in your basement? <sighs> um, but if you think about this, what is the difference in me taking... Uh, a, a, a little bit of grain alcohol or vodka that's infused with ginger and adding it to my apple cider and then bottling or kegging that as opposed to putting it into my glass and right before I drink it, dumping a little bit of the extract into the glass. 
And the answer is there's no F indifference at all other than my convenience. That, that's, that's the answer. There's no difference. So this, is, this reminds me of when I was in Utah, Salt Lake City. And uh, there's some really weird, stupid laws there. And we were at a restaurant that didn't have, they had like a bar section and a restaurant section. But they had eat-in section in the bar with tables, and it was less weight for that. So we said, well, we'll, we'll eat there. And they said, it's still going to be like 30 minutes. Okay, fine. So we belly up to the bar. We order a round of drinks. Somebody finishes early. It's a big table. We have a big party. They're like, boom, down you go. So nobody finished their drink yet. And we're like, okay, great. We start walking over. You can't do it. Why not? You can't take your drink from the bar to the table. Well, I paid for it. Oh, it's okay. Leave it there. The waitress will bring it over for you. This is a law that exists for no purposes other than somebody wanted to write a freaking law and thought too much. Uh, if you can call it thinking. Thought too sideways. Thinking sideways. I think that's, that's the best way to describe uh, our, 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 our freaking legislators today. So technically that's illegal, though I doubt anybody would care. The next one's a simple one, but I'm going to answer it because I keep getting different versions of it, even though we, we kind of already talked about it. Question, why hardly any foam in my containers? They're both bubbling like crazy, but hardly any foam. I've seen foam like two to three inches deep in fermentation buckets before. Mine have less than a half inch of clear foam, and it disappears and then comes back. It's just because lack of pulp, uh, whatnot, but my other batches have had. Uh, added only corn sugar, yeast, tannins, epectic enzyme, raspberry to one. Uh, and that one's not foaming. Temperature is roughly 68-ish intermittent artificial light. Thoughts? Okay. It, it, with these wine yeasts, these champagne yeasts, and doing fruit juices and meads, you're not going to get a big head of foam. Sometimes when you have fruit floating on the top of it, you're going to get a lot of foam around that fruit. If you do things like my methylogen I mentioned with chamomile, elder, uh, and, uh, and uh, heather, You, that kind of pushes the, 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 the cake of, of herb up to the point where I didn't take enough headspace and I had to go in there with a spoon and pull some of it out when it started fermenting. But in general, this is very, very forgiving compared to making beer and, and other things. And now this guy also says he's made apple cider in the past using fresh pressed juice. And when you get larger volumes and you've got some pulp in there, it's probably that pulp that comes up and makes your foam look a little bigger. And it may have a lot to do with the type of yeast you're using. A lot of ale yeasts are much more aggressive in their foaming action than wine yeast. It's just another thing that makes them a little bit different. Here's something else he said, though, that I want to talk about as far as good apple juice. Because I'm getting pushback from purists who want to use the best quality product. Why are you putting this time and energy into something and using something like Mott's? Well, because it's readily available in $4 a gallon, that's why. And because it makes a pretty good product. Again, it makes a great burger. It may not make a perfectly seared, you know, on the outside, gorgeously done prime rib, but it makes a pretty good steak. But here's what he said. I made apple wine years ago from apples I got from my dad's apple tree and thought it was fun, interesting, and the wine was often for awesome for whatever reason I stopped. The other day I heard that episode and thought, what the hell, I'm going to get some apple juice and do it. I never really thought anyone could do this with store-bought juice. And pressing apple juice from 100 pounds of apples without a press is hard, time-consuming, and maybe that's why it's hard to get myself to start a batch. I'm making two gallons right now, one straight apple, one apple raspberry. They're on their sixth day, so they should be close to finishing. I'm starting a third tonight. My yeast is, is cuvee. It says it's, it'll go to like 19% alcohol, so I'm going to push it and try it. Um, well, let's talk about that first of all. Um, you're, you're, you're not going to go to 19% alcohol with what you've put together, unless you put an awful lot of sugar in there. 
The 19% is, is QV's alcohol tolerance, and it's becoming one of my – I don't see anybody using it, and I love it. I, the stuff that I've done with it so far that I've tasted, it's not completely finished yet, but the preliminary tasting, I think this is going to be one of my go-to yeasts. Um, but – sorry, um, lost my train of thought there. A lot, a lot of questions fast here. But you're not – you're going to get to the alcohol point – based on the sugar that's available for fermentation. If there's enough sugar to get to 6%, it doesn't matter what you use, it's going to get to 6%, run out of food, stop nomming down on it, and go to sleep. So I don't know how much sugar you use, but I would not try to go to 19% with an apple cider. Um, I really would, especially just from straight fermentation. You're going to have something very hot on the nose. You're going to have to have almost more sugar in there then you would have apple juice. And the other thing with going with fermenting and going up to like 19% fermentation, you can get something. And oh, maybe this is what happened to the, the question I wasn't sure about. Uh, the person that was doing the half-gallon batches and the fermentation never started. Didn't say whether or not you added sugar. If you added a lot of sugar, especially such a small amount, you can get sugar up to a concentration high enough. There's so much sugar that fermentation won't start. That's why honey doesn't ferment, because it's so concentrated, it won't ferment. right? So if you make like a, a sugar syrup that's like literally like a corn syrup, if you ever notice your corn syrup, it, well, I don't buy corn syrup, but if you had corn syrup in a jar, it doesn't ferment. Or, or sorghum syrup doesn't usually ferment. If it does, maybe a little bit on top, but it doesn't overall ferment. Too high. So to get to 19% in general, you have to do what we learned about in the other show, stage fermentations. So... You ferment something to a certain point, okay, and the sugar comes back down, but the alcohol is up, and then we add more sugar, and then we ferment it and back down and rack it and add more sugar and maybe even repitch some yeast to do that. We have to do a lot with oxygenation. There's a lot of potential for things to go wrong, but it can be done. But 19%, the yeast exceeds the capacity to make a good quality cider, in my opinion. Now, if you wanted to make something like that, I can tell you one of the ways to do it. Make a base cider, five gallons. I mean, you're going to make a lot if you're going to do something like this. You're going to want to age the hell out of it, too. Make a base cider, rack it into a secondary, and hit it with a couple cans of apple juice concentrate. You have to do some calculations and figure some things out here, but that's concentrated apple sugar. So when that ferments again, you're going to jack your alcohol up. So you can actually just figure out, well, if a gallon of it would ferment out to 4.5%, Uh, you know, if I did a, if five gallons of additional uh, apple juice would go to 4.5%, and I put enough concentrate in there to, to make that volume, that should roughly add four and a half. Now, it's not going to be exact, but roughly add four and a half percent to what I already had as my base alcohol level. And you can start pushing things. But remember what I said in that show be careful with this stuff because sometimes you're doing it just to do it. You really are talking about a product you want to age for a long time, and it's really probably for another level of quality if you start going up past like 12%. Table wines, red wines, etc. generally run the gamut somewhere between 9 and 13 to 14% alcohol. And there's a reason that you don't have people making Cabernet Sauvignons and trying to push them up to 18% and get them almost into port territory. Some of it's legalities, but it's also quality. 9 to 12% is plenty of alcohol to make a product that will age beautifully. And going much higher than that, if you want to do it for the hell of it, go ahead, but 
just think about why you're doing what you're doing. And this is where I want to talk about what is good apple juice. So I posted one of my little experiments, which is three batches, uh, to, to try to determine a good, simple, easy, make it in 10 minutes and walk away, rack it one time and keg it fruit cider. And before I make five gallons, again, I make a gallon of each. I found, I don't even remember the brand, but sitting right where the apple juice is in the grocery store, there was a brand of 100% fruit juice. And they're actually the juices they're labeled. There was a black cherry, a cranberry, and a pomegranate. I thought, wow, all of those sound like they would go good with an apple cider. So I bought three bottles. They're a little over a quart each. I came home. I dumped enough apple juice out of each bottle to, to account for some headspace and a little extra so that I could add the apple juice back in. I dissolved a half a cup of brown sugar into each one, a teaspoon of yeast nutrient to kind of feed things and get things going really, really aggressively here. Um, and then I dumped in the, the berry juice. I put the lid back on it, shook the hell out of the lid, you know, shook it, shook it, shook it, lots of O2 in there. And uh, then I, I, I brought it up to almost the top by adding apple juice back into it, took the lid from the one-gallon apple juice bottle outside, took a drill, drilled a hole in it, popped a stopper in it, put a proper airlock in it, uh, pitched the yeast, set it up on my desk, and put a label on each one so I remember what I did. Posted a picture of that in the uh, apple cider, amateur apple cider forum on Facebook, and a guy comes along, why would you be making it with, what is that, Mott's? It's hard. Why you should be using fresh, fresh juice? And cider's not about doing things quick. It's about taking your time and making a premium product. Again, I'm trying to make a steak. You know, not not a, a perfectly prepared 12-hour process prime rib here, okay? And I make a good steak. I, I'm just saying. Nobody ever complains about my steak or my cider. But his assertion, you, you got to take things in contest, that a good quality juice would be fresh-pressed juice. Okay. I love when I, and we'll, we're going to get to a question about this. I don't even know if we're going to get to all these questions. I still have a ton of them. But I might just go really long today and make this like a marathon show for you guys that over my my holiday you can listen to it and, and, and you know, enjoy it over the holiday when I'm not here. But um, when I can get a good fresh-pressed apple juice with no preservatives, no nothing in it, you can bet I love making cider out of it, okay? And it makes a good cider. It's almost paying too much for the cider it makes, though. It's like buying... A good quality piece of beef that's not prime rib and trying to cook it like you cook prime rib and expecting to get prime rib out of it because you use the methods that you would use with a prime rib. Here's why. When we ferment a juice, a fruit juice of any kind, the fermentation process is going to take away a lot of the things that make us go, that's what that is. That's why a glass of Chardonnay doesn't taste like Welcher's grape juice with vodka added to it. It tastes like wine, and grape juice with vodka tastes like grape juice. Until you add, and If you add enough vodka where you can taste the vodka, you're way beyond wine strength, and that's why kids use things like Purple Passion to get drunk off their ass. Okay, It, it is unreasonable to expect that we would ferment anything and have it really taste like the product it began with. There will be essences of it, characteristics of it in there. A terroir, so to speak, if we want to get sophisticated. But it doesn't taste like... Good apple cider doesn't taste like apples. It tastes like good apple cider. All right? So the reason there's such a thing as good apples for making cider is we want things like bitterness components and tannins and sweet components and things like that. And a really great 
apple cider, classic apple ciders, whether it's French with six classifications or the British classification system that used four different bitter sharp, bitter sweet, uh, sweets, and I think bitters is, is what's in there. And there's a ratio, and like the British classification, it's like four, three, two, one. Is a, is a basic starting point for your blends of your different classifications of apples and all. Almost all of these apples, with some exception, very rare exception in the bittersweets and the sweets, if you picked one up and you ate it, it tastes like ass. It's tannic. It makes your lips pucker. It's, it's a cider apple. They call them spitters. Okay? And we blend it all together, and then we take that and we make this fine, high-quality, oh, glorious cider that I've never been able to make because I can't get those apples. When you go get fresh-pressed apple juice, you're buying dessert apples pressed into cider or even a cider-specific apple that's meant for a cider that is to be drunk before it's fermented. Okay, It's, it's Concord grape juice. It's Thompson's grape juice, right? Or Niagara grapes made into grape juice. These are not grapes, or in this case, apples, that are generally pressed and used to make wine. That doesn't make that mean they make a poor quality apple wine or apple cider. It just means when you, when you say you're not using good quality because you're using a store-bought apple juice, you, you may get a different level of quality, but if we're, we're talking like a properly brand, blended French or British dry cider is a 10, And, again, Angry Orchard-level crap Strongbow is a four, if that, and I'm being kind, maybe a five if you like it. And taking Mott's, is, you can make a seven to a 7.5, maybe a little better if you're really good at what you do and get you know, creative with blending things. The right yeast, the right temperatures, whatever, and refine it to your palate. Going to this fresh-pressed juice might take you to a 7.8 or a 7.9. Maybe take you from a seven five to an eight, maybe, maybe, and maybe not. May actually go the other way, because all of the things that make that such a wonderful drink are largely stripped out by the yeast. So it's not that I don't like making cider with that stuff, and we'll talk about that and getting glass bottles for free here in a bit. It, um, but it's a lot harder to find. It costs a lot more money, and it doesn't really jack the quality up. When people say, I'm a purist, traditional cider maker. Oh, really? Then you're blending bitter sharps, bitter sweets, right? Or you know the six different classifications for French based on acidity, and you're blending to your acid levels that are proper for that? Well, what, okay, we're done talking, because you're not. You're me. You're an eight, at best, as a cider maker. Because you don't know how to do that shit. And even if you know, like, I know technically how to do it, but I can't claim to know how to do it because I've never done it because I can't get enough apples of the, and the largest cider makers in the country that make good quality ciders are having trouble making those ciders today because there's a shortage of those apples. Because when prohibition hit the United States, the, the apple vine, or the apple orchards were largely let go. And when prohibition went away, beer became the dominant drink in America. People think beer was really popular in America. It was popular. But the drink of choice up till Prohibition, and certainly in the 1800s, were wines and ciders in this country. And, and so all of that cultivation went away. Apple producers went to producing table apples, like, you know, Washington apples, etc. Um, and we just don't have the quantities of these things, as they call them, spitter apples being made. So this is why I have no qualms using store-bought apple juice. 
because it's really not that far away from anything else anybody makes once you fermented it. Now, before you ferment it, if you want apple cider to drink as a sweet, delicious fall treat, oh my God, of course fresh-pressed apple juice is better than store-bought apple juice. But I'll bet you, if I took a gallon of fresh-squeezed apple juice and a gallon of treetop and used the exact same yeast, especially a highly attenuating, high-alcohol-tolerant yeast, and made two batches the exact same way and put them side-by-side, you might prefer the cheap juice. You wouldn't be able to detect a huge difference in quality between the two. You just won't be able to. Because all of the fructose, all of the apple sugar, is basically 100% fermentable. That's why people do back-sweetening. So just to sum that up, imagine you were making um, wine, uh, a white wine, and you were using something like Welcher's grape juice to make white wine. I don't know what there's a question about that. I'll answer it right now. I don't know what it's going to taste like. It's cheap. Buy a gallon of it, throw some yeast in it, and try it. I, I don't make pure wines. But you were using Welcher's grape juice that comes from Niagara grapes. And... Uh, Someone said, oh, I can't believe you're doing that. Why don't you get fresh-pressed grape juice to make your wine must out of? So you look around, and what you can get is basically like Thompson's and Niagara and table grapes, and that's all you can get. There are no wine grapes, as if pressing them fresh is going to make that big of a difference in making a wine out of them. Now, which one would taste better as a, as a fresh grape juice? Fresh press, come on, we understand that. But the fermentation process changes so many things, there's not that much that lingers over in those subtle differences when you're not doing something that's purposely been bred and developed for that process. And ironically, that was actually the next question, is somebody asking about using grape, store-bought grape juice, which is 100% juice, to make wine. I'd say try it. I would say that you're probably going to get a pretty decent table quality wine like Carlo Rossi Chablis right that kind of quality from a white I can't see uh, like Concord grape juice making that great of a wine I think you might make a wine that's really good for things like sangria okay uh, but you know something similar to like a Rihanniti Lambrusco or something like that but I, I can't you know like cheap uh, jug wine quality uh, out of both but I don't know. I've drank cheap jug wine that's red wine, and it's like, this is not what a red wine is supposed to taste like. And I've drank cheap white wines, especially if you're making spritzers and white sangrias, and they're fine for that. And I think that might be the case. Or you might make it and write in and go, dude, it's an awesome wine. Hey, I threw some oak chips in it and aged it for a year. and it was. But here's the thing. Do you want – this is why this is awesome, right? So you go and you just do all your other stuff, right? You, you make up a couple batches of this stuff. You bottle it. You put it away for a year, you pull it out, and you try it. If it's good, well, now you know you can scale it up. If it sucks, well, you throw out a few bottles, or you make spritzers or whatever. But do you really want to make 10 gallons of that stuff to find out it sucks ass? That's why I love these quick fermentations. So here's my thing. I would think that by fermenting out a grape juice like that, and you're definitely going to have to fortify that with some sugar, and probably some tannins as well, because there's not going to be much tannin left in there. Um, and tasting it in 60 days, it won't be finished, it won't be done, but I think you'll have a good grasp on whether or not you're going to like it. I, I really do. So give it a try and let us know. Two months and two gallons and two different yeasts and see what you think. Remember, grape wine, you know, proper wine is the one thing I've never done and just 
really it's not something that tickles my fancy, so I haven't gone down that path. When making mead, can you use store-bought bottle tunny? I think this is a lot like the store-bought apple juice uh, or proper apples debate. I think you can use, especially if you make sure you buy a product that is 100% made in the USA, because there's a lot less of funny business going on with U.S. honey. I think you can make a damn fine mead with honey from the store, and I do it all the time, because my hives only give me so much honey, and I can only procure so much local honey, etc. Um, but unlike the apple world, where it's almost impossible, unless you're very lucky and live next to a, 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 a cidery that has these old-school apples and sells raw juice. Uh, if you're that person, you can get it. Unlike that, in the world of honey, you can get the very best. You can get orange blossom honey from you know producers where you know where it was sourced from. You can get heather honey from Ireland. Um And these are expensive honeys. These are exotic honeys. And again, this is where making a gallon or two be preferable to trying to shell out the coin to make a huge amount. And this is where you might bottle in half half wine bottle size bottles to make that precious elixir stick around a little bit longer uh, and be here for you know aging and, and things like that. So you can get it. So I'm much more likely to use fine raw honey product in the manufacturing of mead uh, than I am to try to find like the perfect juice to make cider because I can get it. I can literally order it, you know. And I, if you think about it, it's also it's a concentrate, right? So um, it's very difficult to find like an apple concentrate that actually would be a blend. That'd be kind of interesting if it was available. Who knows? Maybe it is. I doubt it. I bet what's available isn't really that much different than what you can buy in a store. But with bees, the honey is concentrated by, or with honey, the, bee, the bees do the concentration for us. So if I want 15 pounds of honey to make a substantial five-gallon batch of mead, it's not that expensive to ship. I can order it if I can't get it locally. And there's always local producers of honey, and you should make mead with local honeys. I have a sizer going right now that's just... Store-bought apple juice and a pint jar of my honey. It should be fantastic. It's a small mead. I didn't use a quart, right? I didn't use two pounds of honey or anything. I used a small amount of honey. It's about one and a half pounds, and I didn't heat up apple juice and risk, you know, setting the pectin. Uh, I diluted the honey with water to get it into the apple juice, so... You know, I cut about two cups of water into there, so that's going to reduce the overall alcohol. It'll finish out a lot quicker than a big... I have another sizer going uh, that I use two and a half pounds of honey, and I use as little water as possible and pure apple juice, and that'll take a lot longer to finish out. I did that because this is my honey for my hive, and I want to taste it soon. I want something that in 90 days I can at least have my first sampling of it and, and actually kind of get a feel for what the end product's going to be. So I do think we should make meads from locally sourced honey. Find all the beekeepers in your area you can. Find out what they have available. And, and you might find that it doesn't cost as much as you think it does. And I think we should consider making meads from exotic honeys. I'm excited. One day I'm going to break down, spend the money, and I'm going to buy pure heather honey. And I'm going to use a heather, heather infusion. And I'm going to make a heather a heather mead 
in in the old school Irish way, and I think that'll be fantastic. And I might make I might spend the money and buy 30 pounds of honey and make 10 gallons of that because that's something I'm going to want to age. You know, I want to try some in a year. I want to try some in five years. I want to try some in 10 years. Um, I probably would like to to you know have a bottle you know at like my, my grandson's graduation or something like that just to tell you how far in the future I'd look with something like that. But yeah, you can use store-bought honey. Here's the problem, and this is especially true with imported honeys. A lot of them are blends with uh, corn sugar into them, or they're just feeding the bees pure corn syrup. Uh, and, and so the bees are getting almost no nectar. Uh, and again, that's more true as you, you see honey that's sourced internationally than it is. But there's some U.S. stuff that's going on like that too, because what happens is... They move the bees out into do uh, pollination for like an apple orchard or whatever uh, or orange orchard, and then they sell that honey that those bees produce as uh, as you know orange blossom honey. And then what they do is they've robbed the bees of they just take everything they can get. It's industrial nasty beekeeping basically, and then they just stuff the bees. They they bring the bees back to their home base because they don't have another pollination job. Let's say for the the rest of the season, and they just shove and like community feed the hell out of the bees corn syrup uh, because it's late in the year and the bees can't really gather a bunch of other nectar. And, and and the bees are making honey, but they're using corn syrup as their their thing, and. It, technically, it's still honey because they didn't put the corn syrup in. The bees used it and made honey. And you can't really tell that's not honey when you taste it, but it's not the quality. So that's something to look out for. I've had a lot of people tell me that they uh, they don't like buckwheat honey. I love buckwheat honey, and I love buckwheat honey for making, um, uh, making mead. I think it's a fantastic honey for making mead. Clover honey is the most common, and it makes wonderful mead. And understand this. There's no such thing, really, as orange blossom or clover or buckwheat honey. Those are the dominant flowers that were available at the time the bees were making uh, the, 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 the honey. Bees will range up to two miles, and they will collect whatever they feel like. So don't get too caught up in that. Okay, the next one here says, um, this is from Jerry. Jerry says, why is back sweetening such a bad pro- practice? Uh, comment, you said in the Simple Cider Meat episode that you hated back sweetening. I watched the Brewing TV episode 67 on how to make hard cider. They talk about and show back sweetening. Will you explain what's bad about it from your experience and how you would do it differently, Jerry, uh, in West Virginia? Okay, I don't think it's bad like, oh, if you do it, you're an evil asshole and you should be shot in the face with a bazooka. Uh, kind of bad. Or anybody that back sweetens a product should be hung up with no shoes on and have the bottoms of their feet beaten with bamboo canes. I don't. It's not like it's bad. Here's here's my issues with it. First, if you're going to back sweeten, then we have to stabilize using potassium metasulfate and potassium sorbate. I don't like to use either of those. Okay, I, you know a lot of people use Camden, which is the potassium sulfate. At the beginning, and this basically chills everything out, but it doesn't actually kill everything. And the potassium metasulfate, that's what we're going to use at the end, and possibly along with the potassium sorbate. And that not only chills out the yeast and stops it from acting, but it kills it dead. So then we have something that's going to stay dead still. So if I do that, the only way I can carbonate now is with forced carbonation. So first of all, if I'm bottling stuff, I make very few still anything. I love sparkling ciders. I love sparkling meads. They are my my holy grail. I, I think that it's very hard for me to make anything as a still product. 
And every time I do, even if I love it, I think to myself, this would be so good sparkling. So unless I'm, and if I'm kegging, I guess that doesn't matter. But if I'm bottle conditioning, it's not even an option. Because if I, if I back sweeten a product and then bottle condition, I'm going to blow the bottle up or at least overcarbonate. So there's just that in, in, in a, a process standpoint. The next thing is I don't like overly sweet stuff. And, and I, I really think that most of this back sweetening thing is two things. One is a desire. And so we're going to back sweeten with cherry juice. Uh, concentrated cherry juice is one way this is done to make a cherry apple cider. We want to make a product that tastes like cherries, damn it. If we, again, we already said if we ferment the cherry juice, there's a cherry characteristic, but it doesn't taste like cherries as in a cherry you would eat because all the sugar's gone. So we want the fruit flavor of the adjunct to come through. So we have to back sweeten to get that done. And even if we use a concentrated cherry uh, flavor, like I'm talking about with uh, Brewer's Best product, it's not sweet like a cherry. It just has more cherry characteristic, and we can push it up a little bit more. So there's that. And then there's the desire for it to be sweet. And if we take an apple cider and we sweeten it, a lot of the apple flavor you don't think's there comes back out, just like salt brings out other flavors. So we sweeten it to accomplish that. I've had ciders that have been gently back-sweetened that I think are pretty good. Very few of them are actually gently. Most of them are overdone. I think this whole back-sweetening phenomenon comes from two things. One, people that make shitty cider, and since it tastes like shit, you, you, you put a bunch of sugar in it and cover it up. Um, and, and that's probably the major minority out there, but I think that was done in the past when they just used whatever apples they could get, and sometimes cider didn't taste so good in that batch, we sweetened it with honey or, or whatever, uh, just so that it would still be drunk. And then there's this 20-something vibe that goes on, and I think that's a bigger part of it. Um, the demographic from 21 to 35 is the biggest demographic in production-level alcohol. Most of those people aren't out buying $50 bottles of wine, and they're not out buying $22 bottles of, $2 bottles of cider. They are the six-pack generation, right? And it's not this generation is not a millennial phenomenon. This is when I was 24 years old, too. I was, and, and going all the way back in time, the, the, the Miller Light and you know, the, the Coors Light and the whole world of mass-produced beverages, that moves that market. That's why everything's marketed with sex and sports and games, because that's that market. And it has been for 20 years, and if you take the video games out, it's been that way for 50 years. Okay, So that's why that product is made, because it's for that generation. And what do most people in that generation grow up drinking in our country today? Pepsi, Coke, RC, Dr. Pepper, whatever. Highly sweet, highly sugared things. They eat fast food and they're throwing sugar in your freaking french fries in fast food, guys. Because you take sugar and carbs and fat and you put them together and it's addictive. So they grow up with sugar. So when they taste something without sugar in it, oh, oh it's horrible, it's awful. Ah! Um, <laughs> that's why, you know, they, 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 they brew these beers with almost no hop characteristics. And what drives the craft beer market is either the hipsters in that age group or the older guys like me that want to actually appreciate something now. So here's my challenge for those of you that like these sweet drinks. Try it for two weeks. Cut all sugar out of your diet for two weeks. It'll do other health benefits anyway. I mean when you make a glass of tea or coffee, no sugar. I don't mean diet sodas. Okay? All sweeteners, get rid of it. Just do it for two weeks. Then go drink your sugary beverage of preference that you've been waiting for. You'd be like, oh my 
God, what is this crap? That's how you'll feel. And if it doesn't work in two weeks, give it a month. And if you stop putting sugar in all your stuff and you stop eating cakes and candies in general and you stop adding sugar to things and you stop drinking things with artificial sweeteners, if you start drinking your iced tea with just tea and water, if you start making herbal teas or coffee and you put milk in your coffee and have a little bit of lactose from the milk will sweeten it, you will see how oversweetened things are. And you probably won't like these back sweetened ciders either. But they're not bad. I just don't like them. And that means if you don't want to do my experiment, if you like sweet stuff, you can back sweeten your ass off. I can't tell you the ratios and exactly how to do it. I will tell you again, you have to kill the yeast before you do it and go to Homebrew Talk and search for back sweetening and you will find tons of information on what to do and how to do it. And, and, and go ahead and do it. And if you ever come here, bring one and I'll drink it with you and I might even enjoy it. And I'll tell you, you know, you, you, you went mellow with it. That's not too bad. Or if you oversweeten the shit out of it, I'll be like, I'm sure some people like it. I'll never tell you I like your, your stuff if I don't. Because I, I think it's dishonest. And I think that it doesn't mean anything when I say I do. But again, it's my personal opinion. You should drink what you like, and you should make what you like, so you can drink what you like. Oh boy, what a short question that could go for hours, and I won't let it. What is the difference between mead, wine, and cider? And what about the different types of beers and wines? Okay, beer... Mead is, if you want to be a purist, mead is an alcoholic beverage made with honey, water, and yeast, and nothing else. And by the way, for you purists, uh, it, 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 by looking at historical records and what we can learn about mead, almost no mead, when mead became popular, from everything from the Vikings to the, the Ethiopian area of Africa to, the, to Asia, was ever made that way. It was almost always adjuncted with fruits and whatever you get your hands on. Honey was very, very expensive compared to even today. It was a, a product of kings and beekeepers and bee, and, and bee hunters and honey hunters because there's very few sources of really concentrated sugar available back then. So if you had a field full of blackberries or raspberries or anything with a lot of fructose in it that you could boost up your content with, it was thrown in. But meads are a, a wine made with honey and water. And then you can add other things that change the names of it, and we'll get to that in a second. Wine, in its purest form, is grape juice and possibly water and yeast. And yes, maybe adjunctive sugars. But it's, it's fermented grape juice, and that's a pure wine. A cider is fermented apple juice. And then it gets gray. Okay, And then there could be a fruit wine. So if I ferment cherry juice, technically I have cherry wine. No one's ever done that often enough, frequently enough, to actually have its own category. Plum wine is actually very popular in Asia because they have so many friggin' plums there. right? So, but it's called a wine. So if I fer ferment a fruit, technically, it's also a wine. right? Well, what happens when I take a fruit and mix it with a cider? Is it a cherry cider or is it a cherry wine with apple flavor in it? I don't know. And people debate this and get angry about this and have fights about it. And I, I, won't, I won't go there. Um, what is a mead when I add cherries to it? Well, it's, it's, it's a melamol is the traditional word for it. But do I really care? I don't know. Because what if I add ginger to a mead? Well, that's a spice. S spice. So that's a methylogen, right? So does a melamol or is it a methylogen? Or is it a spiced melamol? Or is it a fruit-infused meth? I, I don't care. 
But that's your basic. What about the different types of beers and wine? Way too complex. But the basic answer is beers go in two main categories, ales and lagers. Lagers are fermented with bottom fermenting yeast that ferment at lower temperatures, and ales are fermented with top fermenting yeast that ferment at higher temperatures. From there, there's five gazillion categories. Wines? <laughs> uh, no way. Not going to go there. But just let's say red and white, rose, and sparkling. And you can, you can go down that rabbit hole all by yourself from that point. Because it gets really confusing to the point of, does it really matter? So a braggot is one more example before we move on. A braggot is a mead that includes uh, grain, like barley or uh, uh, you know, a malted grain of some kind. It could be wheat, could be rye, but barley was most traditional. So it's basically a honey beer. But if I take and make a five-gallon batch of beer and add a pound and a half, two pounds of honey to five gallons, I have a beer with honey. It, to make it a braggot, I have to go more to the point of where it's like a mead with extract of, you know, it's either uh, from a store-bought extract or I've done a, a mash and I've, I've brought sugar in from a grain, but I'm dominant to the honey. Where does the line cross over? Where does it cease being a honey bee and be, beer become a braggot? I don't know, and I don't care. I don't care. Make what you like and drink what you like. Because the answer to that question is nobody really knows. Because the creation of all these different beverages precedes any attempt to truly classify them. Next question is, can you make an alcohol-free mead? Yeah. Pretty much. You can also do a lot of things, like you can put your penis in a beehive... But you probably should. Now, this person's asking because they can't have alcohol and they would like to have, you know, the ability to, to taste mead. You might almost be better off tasting a tiny taste once a week or something that's not enough to bother you than to do what I'm about to tell you you could do. Because I think the final product would be not very good. What you have to do then is, and you have to look up the temperature and duration to get it done. Because you got to be very careful. If you go too hot, you're going to boil off all of... And you're probably going to lose a lot of the honey esters and everything anyway. Basically, you're going to heat it. You're going to heat it. You're going to do distillation without collecting the distillate. And you're not going to get it to zero. You might be able to get it down to like a half percent alcohol. And uh, I've read of people doing this and making their own alcohol-free beer. So you brew a batch of beer, you put in a great big, you know, like, nine-gallon kettle because you got five gallons in there, you turn up the heat, you get it. I think it's like 180 degrees for like an hour or something like that. Uh, it's something like that. And, 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 again, you have to look this up. I think Charlie Papazian actually had a way to do it in his first book, but he wasn't a fan of it. He cook all the alcohol out of it. And then you can either, if you wanted to make that a sparkler, you could either keg it, or you could go ahead, add some sugar to it, add some yeast. And yes, it's going to make some alcohol, but very, very little, because you're going to then cold crash it and stop that process so it doesn't keep going. Um, and you, you're also going to only add so much sugar back to it. But I don't know if you've ever drank near beer or alcohol-free wines or something like that. I just, nah. I just can't see it. I would think a I, – I don't know what to tell you to do, man. I, I, I would be pretty devastated if I could never have mead again uh, myself, but I think you have a, a, a limitation there. Has anybody ever done it is what I'll throw out, and, and what was the product like? Um, but, again, I'm going to tell you 
what I don't know what you mean by can't have alcohol. Uh, maybe it's because you have a recovering addiction and you just can't be tempted. Sure. Maybe it's a health thing with ulcers or something where you have to have it in so much moderation that you, 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 you can't drink even a glass ever. And I understand that and I, I feel for you. But if it's like for some reason you can't have alcohol at all, like you couldn't take cough medicine that had a little alcohol in it or something like that, um, I don't even think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to go 100% alcohol free. If you look at alcohol free beers, they usually say something like 0.25% alcohol, which is you could drink a gallon of it and, and, and you know, you wouldn't buzz a child off of, with it, but it's it still got some in there. Just so I'm not sure on that one. Here's one we've answered parts of, but not the other. How long do you leave your cider to age? Depends on what I'm making. Um, I, I really say three weeks is enough time to ferment uh, a week in a secondary to get it off of the, the, the residue and then bottle it. And it says, um, do, you, uh, do you add sugar to carbonate? If I want to carbonate, I do. And uh, do you leave it in the original gallon bottle? I've never carbonated it in a one-gallon bottle. I think that's a bit much because when you open it, And I don't know that most of the one-gallon bottles you have with the screw-top lids are actually going to hold in the carbonation. Um, and so I always carbonate when I do it in a bottle and glass bottles. What you can do is, and I think a good size for it, is a one-liter soda bottles, the smaller ones. Those, when you cap them, they will carbonate just fine in there. They're designed to hold pressure carbonation. And uh, But that's for quick-drinking stuff. I wouldn't want to age my cider in that, Okay. Um, he says, I'm Australia juice doesn't come in gallons. It comes in 1.52 and 2.4 liter bottles. Water doesn't come in gallon batches either. I've converted a gallon and pounds to water honey ratio, but would like to also try to run numbers to see if I'm right about that. Uh, a list of books you recommend. Um, I, I, I would tell you to start in forums. Start in forums before you go to too many books. Books are generally written from a purist standpoint with, with sanitation and all specialized equipment and things like that. And forums are full of people doing this a thousand different ways and figure out what works best for you. What's going to keep you doing it? What's going to keep you making product? It says, ever thought of distilling? I make vodka from sugar-based washes. I think it's probably too expensive to run mead through the still, but what about cider? You could make an apple brandy through a still. It's illegal in the United States, informational purposes only. You would want to use, though, a pot still, not something like Stephen Harris's little ethanol-making still. If you have a still that's pumping stuff out 130, 140 proof in the first run, just as yeast strips out a lot of flavors and characteristics, you're going to get the pretty much almost pure alcohol and water. You're not going to get a, like a brandy-type thing. Would I distill mead? Um, I, I don't think I would. I've never heard of anybody doing it. Honey is all about these aromatics and things that you're going to totally blow off. The traditional way to fortify meat and increase alcohol is, is like an ice distillation. Like I, I talked about Applejack later or earlier. Again, informational purposes only because it's technically illegal. Lots of questions on time and aging and things like that. It says, for someone not all that familiar with home brewing, how do you know if it's ready or needs time to rest? Uh, what does it do to the taste? Do you let it rest at room temperature in a fridge? Um, generally speaking, I want, until I'm done fermenting, it's got to be at room temperature. If I've put it in bottles and it's carbonated, now it can go in the fridge. But I'd like to get it in lower temperatures. I really would. For aging, 
I, I like to age at like 60 degrees or lower. I don't have a lot of options for that. But if I, if I had a cellar or something, uh, I would definitely cellar age. I mean, that's why we have things like wine cellars. How do you know when it's ready? The right answer is that you get a hydrometer and you take a starting gravity and you calculate what your final gravity should be and you make sure that blah, 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 blah. I sure used to do that, and when I stopped doing it, nothing changed for me. Um, when you're making these ciders and stuff like that, when it stops bubbling the airlock, when you sit there and look at it for 10 minutes and it doesn't have a single bubble come out of the airlock, um, and it's cleared up, it's ready. It's ready. Now, do you want to take it a little bit longer? Give it more time? Do you want to rack it before you do it? Do you want to call? All these things you learn from experience. Now, this is why we're doing one-gallon batches with apple juice that sells for $4 to $6 a gallon. Because you can experiment with it. You can screw it up. It's okay. Please be, be okay with screwing up. And go, you know what? That was good, but I think it could be better. So don't stress over it. But when I'm making apple ciders three weeks to a month, a week after I rack it off so that it can clear out even more, and then into the bottle or keg it goes. Um, if I am going to, get this, if I'm going to still do a still cider, I will put that in a one-gallon jug. I will put that in a two-liter soda bottle. I have no problem with it. Okay, I will rack it over to a secondary. I will rack it from a secondary. I'll go right from the secondary to a bottle. I'll do that, like a, a one-gallon bottle. When I do that, just to make sure, because I don't like to use potassium sorbates and metasulfates and stuff like that as stabilizers. And, and, and since I don't do many stills, I don't really worry about that. But if, I'm, if I do want to do a still for whatever reason, then once I get it into its final bottle, I just put it in the refrigerator. And done. And if it does get kind of a, a, a pretty good yeast cake on it, I'll just take another bottle. Rinse it out really good with some warm water and, and make sure it's good and clean. Set it down. And since I'm keeping it in the refrigerator, I'm not really worried about oxidation. I'll just take a funnel and just dump it into the other bottle really, really slow. And if I start to see any sediment come out, I'll pull that up. Maybe I'll go ahead and be stingy and drink that little bit with some yeast in it. And I'll have a perfectly clear still cider in the refrigerator. This is an everyday apple wine, basically. This is not your high-quality stuff. But your best aging occurs either in a secondary fermenter, Okay, uh, or in a bottle. And in both cases, the fermentation's really done. With meads, there might be some lingering stuff happening and what have you, but you're aging. You're not continuing the fermentation process. And this is why, once I have a clear product, I like to get into a bottle. But again, I'm not a winemaker, uh, and, and meads, I let go a really long time before they go into a bottle, unless they're a small mead. All right, next question. Here's a complicated one and one that gets to a point where I don't worry about it in some situations. My question is, how are you clearing the sediment from the water or juice bottles and degassing your cider or meat? And again, I do this by racking to a secondary fermenter is my primary thing. I don't do a lot of cold crashing, which is put the fermenter in the refrigerator and let the cold crash out the remaining yeast. I do that when I have a cider that's just not clearing and I know damn well it's way past being done. That, that, that's about it. And it doesn't happen. Uh, your posts have, me, have me, gotten me ready to, to dust off my carboys and gear. My grandparents have used uh, your method to make a lot of wine back in the day. See attached recipe cards from my grandparents. 
I came from a line of winers and shiners that made it in Soldier Survive. I was just curious if you thought about degassing and getting the sediment out. I have made mead and wine in five-gallon batches, and the process I use is pretty standard. One, clean and sanitize the materials, primary fermenter tools, bags for fruit. Add some water and additives, bentonite, tannin, acid blend, and a lot of stuff that we haven't even talked about. Add more water, add juice from a kit or sugar or honey and fruit and spices, top off and cover, add airlock or balloon. The fermentation process will create sediment and CO2 gas. I siphon the wine off after seven days and put it in a carboy after I degas it. A carboy is a, is a glass bottle to do your secondary fermentations in. They come in little one, if you have a one gallon uh, wine jug or apple cider jug that's made out of glass and you clean it out, you got a one gallon carboy. Things that look like a big water cooler bottle, but they're made out of glass, not plastic, they're a big old glass carboy. Um, and degas it. The wine will continue to produce sediment over time, and I will do a final siphon into a bottling bucket to try to eliminate as much sediment as possible. So I think I've covered that. That's almost what I do. I wanted to talk about degassing real quick, though. Okay, I have never degassed a mead. I have never made a still mead and had it be a problem. It's a very common thing in winemaking, and it really is common in making red wines. To degas, we need, again, to pitch a sulfate to kill off the yeast. And then we're going to use something like we're going to sanitize a, a, a degassing wand. They sell them. You put it in a, in a hand drill. You stick it down into your, your carboy or your bottling bucket, and, and it all foams up. Now, since it's being stirred from underneath, not from on top, we're not oxygenating it. We're doing the opposite. We're forcing gas out of it. This is because I want to make a typical bottle of wine, like a Ziffendale or a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Bordeaux, right? And I want to pour a glass, and I don't want there to be any cidery, bubbly, foamy, nothing. I want it to be dead still. And Reuniti Lambrusco, if you want to see someone, a, a, a well-known winemaker, cheap winemaker, that clearly doesn't do this, and, and serves their wine with this residual CO2 in it on purpose, and how bad it can be, try that crap. Okay, and then don't blame me for a bottle of wine you don't really want to use, though it does make a decent sangria, so you can make some sangria out of it. But it's this, they call it cidery, though I, I think that's a disservice to cider, but it means there's a bubbly feel. If you've ever let a bottle of orange juice sit in the refrigerator just a couple days too long, or when you poured it in a glass, you didn't really smell anything wrong with it, but when you drank it, it had this, like, again, cidery is the term that people use, though I don't like the term. Um, that's what we're talking about. And a lot of wines, especially if you don't degas them, can hold that carbonation in there. Now, since I don't make grape wines, I've never really had it be a problem. And since I, I carbonate almost everything I make, I don't really consider it, it is an issue. But if you are making, I would guess, some fruit wines, if you're going to do still fruit wines or still ciders, then you're going to want a bottle and age. You may want to do the degassing process. But the sediment separation, I just do that by racking. And, and I know a lot of people that have made a lot of different ciders and wines to do stills that have never had a problem with this retention of CO2. I think that time alone will, will, will take care of that for most instances. And if I, if I hear back from Tom that it's okay to, to publish the recipes that he sent me, I'll do that.
Uh, next question says, I've seen some people put raisins in as a yeast nutrient. Will this change the flavor any or will it just help fermentation? It really won't because if you look at the quantities of raisins that people use when they use raisins as an adjunct, either with a cider or a wine or what have you, it's not a lot. It's also very common in, in meads. and You'll see it call out for 12 or 20 raisins or something like that. But I did want to tell you that if you don't put those raisins, and many recipes don't ask you to, if you don't put those raisins into like 150-degree water and pasteurize them, they're also carrying wild yeasts. And many meads that are made in open form fermentation model that don't call for pitching of yeast use raisins as one of the ways to start a natural fermentation. And I think this is where we can just relax and have a home brew, as Charlie Papazian would say, who is the author of The New Complete Joy of Home Brewing, my Overall brewing mentor. First book I ever got and got me off to a good start. It's probably really outdated now. Again, I've been brewing for 21 years. Um, and it was, I think it was an old, I think it was written in the 70s or something when I got it back in the 90s. But um, we, we get a little bit hyper, I think, about sanitizing the hell out of everything. And then we go and we oxygenate, you know, our, our wort or whatever before we, we started running. We get all this air in it. There's yeast floating all over in the air. If you've touched it with your fingers, yeast on your body. Some old traditional mead makers, when they get a vat ready to go, and they're stirring it and stirring it and stirring it to get air into it, and to get wild yeast into it, and pitching your raisins or whatever, or a little bit of troop or leaves from their last batch, they'll stick their arm down in there, right? And they make fantastic meads. It becomes more and more an issue as you get into the point where you go into lacto-fermentation, lactobacillus and stuff like that, And unless you live in a 10-mile uh, radius around Brussels, it's not a very reliable thing. Um, but ye the, the, the raisins, unless you use them in significant quantity to the ratio of the totality of what you're making, they're not going to alter your flavor profile at all. But they will aid as a yeast nutrient uh, and as a source of some, some wild yeast. And the, the yeast, you got to think about it this way, a raisin is a grape. A yeast that comes and, and, and kind of levels itself on the side of a grape, it's waiting to ferment that grape. It's actually a yeast that's adapted to ferment a grape. But what happens is they dry the raisin out so it never gets to the point where it's overripe and it, it's, it's watered down to a point where the yeast can start getting up the sugar. It's just sitting there waiting. Nature's little yeast satchel. Traditional apple ciders, no yeast. If you just take a whole bunch of fresh apples, crush them, press the juice... And then put a cloth over the, your fermenter or an airlock. It'll pretty much ferment if you leave it at room temperature. There's yeast all over apples, and traditional ciders are made with the, the yeast that came with the apples. So that's that's part of the thinking there. A question we've covered parts of before, but not the whole thing. I have three different one-gallon batches of apple juice going. I'd like one sweet, one bubbly, and one flat. What's the simplest way to do that? I love Grohl's beer and have 50 empty bottles, much to my wife's annoyance. I can't believe how easy this was to do. Thanks. Okay, of course the Grohl's bottles will work fine. Okay. If you want to make one sweet, you have to back sweeten. And I, like I said, I can't really tell you how to do that. But I will, I will tell you this. You could simply add uh, apple juice concentrate uh, when you put it in a glass to sweeten it because it's not much of a difference. Because you can't bottle condition a bubbly back sweetened cider. You cannot do it. You could use apple juice concentrate as your priming sugar, but you'd use so little and the alcohol would ferment it out. So since you're going with gross, gross bottles, the only way you're really going to get a sweet cider is to sweeten it when you decant it. 
And the only other thing you can do is the next time you make it, uh, maybe go with a... It's just not going to happen with cider. You're not really going to make a sweet cider with residual sweetness unless you really push it. If you use, like, lots of apple juice concentrate uh, and use a, a weak yeast that peters out at, like... You make a, a use concentrated apple juice and create something where the yeast peters out at, like, 7%, though I don't know many yeasts that are that weak, but it has 9% potential that a 2% residual sugar will stay there. And you can do it still that way, but it's not going to be sweet. Sweet um, ciders are that you're going to back sweeten. Again, you have to kill the yeast. You have to force carbonate. You can't bottle condition. Um, I guess there is a way to do it. I guess there is a way to do it. Back sweeten your cedar, your, your cedar, your cider. <laughs> You're taking a risk here, but it could be done. Use apple juice concentrate, back sweeten your cider, put it in your bottles. Cap them, leave them out for 10 hours, and put them in a refrigerator. You'll probably end up with a mildly carbonated sweetened cider, but when that thing comes out of the refrigerator, you got to be careful when you open it, and I'm saying... A cold bottom of the refrigerator, you know, 38 degrees. You, I guess you could do that. People do it and they make soda like this. They make root beer with root beer extract, water and sugar, and champagne yeast. They put it in a two-liter soda bottle. And when the bottle feels like it's really tight, like the like the, 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 the yeast has, has done its job, they put it in the refrigerator and cold crash it. And they give that to kids because there's so little alcohol and it doesn't matter. So that I guess you could do. Um... Bubbly and flat, simple. Prime one, don't prime the other. But but you, you can't really do a sweet cider that's bottle conditioned. It's 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 not really possible uh, other than trying to tweak it the way I just gave you that I know of. Anybody wants to chime in on that in the comments section, please do. Another racking question. Jim in Houston says, if I rack off the second fermentation, can I add something sweet to keep the fermentation going longer? What are the advantages and disadvantages of doing this? Thanks for the show. Well, the disadvantage is... You're running, you're, you're stalling, you're restarting, and each time you do that, the potential for esters and off flavors, et cetera, increases, and there's an unevenness to it. So I fermented apples, and then I fermented cherry juice, and then I fermented honey, like that, a staged fermentation. The advantage is I can push my alcohol tolerances from my yeast much higher. I can be a lot more likely to get a fully finished well-attenuated result from my yeast. Because, and we talked about this later or earlier, let's say I run my fermentation up to 7%, and I've got a yeast in there that can handle 18% alcohol. I add some sugar that can take me from 7 to 10. It's a, it's a day in the park for that yeast. There's a ton of dead yeast bodies floating around in there, great nutrient profile. Population of the yeast is way, way up. It's still doing its thing a little bit. This is called stage fermentation. I talked about it in the show. Um, it can only do so much for you. The, I'll tell you the primary place that I've used it, and this is in beer. I used to make a beer that I called Polynesian Conversion, Polynesian Conversion Triple. 
And I called it conversion because it's based on Abiel, which is, of course, the monastery and monks and religion. Uh, so that worked. But it was also my beer that I would give to people to turn them into home brewers. It was best at about nine months in the bottle. It was glorious at nine months in the bottle. It only got better from there, though very little of it ever made it much longer after that. And a lot of it started to disappear around six months. And I used a Trappist ale yeast, which is alcohol tolerant, but only so much. And what I would do is I would put it in a primary fermenter. I'd make a five-gallon batch and a six-and-a-half-gallon fermenter. And I used 12 pounds of malt extract, and I won't get into all the hops and everything used to balance that out. But that is a barley wine right there in of itself, okay? And I would ferment that for about three weeks, and I would rack it in. I need space to do this. So I'd rack it into another 6.5-gallon fermenter, and then I just dumped no boiling, no nothing, whatever came out of, the, of the, the jug came out, whatever didn't, didn't, five pounds of honey, okay? 17 pounds of fermentables into a five-gallon batch. And it would just, you almost need a blow-off hose when you do it the second time. And it, <laughs> we're talking like a beer with like 16% alcohol. And you could drink it once it mellowed with age like you were drinking a standard American lager. Uh, it was much more beautiful than that, but you had to be careful with this. This would put you on your ass flat. And so that's an example. Doing it once in an example like that is, to me, it makes a lot more sense than doing it uh, tw three times, etc., twice, three, four times. It, it, it's a way to elevate your alcohol levels, increase the tolerance and capacity and performance of your yeast, And you don't always have to rack to another fermenter to do it. You, if you have a big fermenter, you could add your, your sugar there. But it makes sense to add, go to a second fermenter when you're doing it. And like I said, the, the, the thing it lets you do and, and, and play around with is there are sugar concentrations so high fermentation doesn't really start. It's not that the yeast can't handle the alcohol potential. They can't handle the starting gravity, right? You can go too high with your starting gravity. Uh, real quick one uh, from Blake. What's the difference between priming sugar and re residual ta regular table sugar? I have a lot of one-pint grocery bottles sitting around. I don't have any priming sugar. What's the difference between priming and regular sugar? How much table sugar versus priming sugar should I use? Most recipes seem to call for a teaspoon of priming sugar per bottle. I would assume the same rule applies with table sugar, correct? I'm still waiting on yeast from Amazon, so I have plenty of time to figure this out. Um, the difference is that priming sugar generally is corn sugar. It looks like powdered sugar. And table sugar is granulated uh, sugar from cane. We already kind of talked about that. I don't care for priming. Use either one. Use them the same volumes. I will say that in a 12-ounce bottle, I use a half a teaspoon. 16 to 22 ounces, your Grolsch's might be 16. I would go with a full teaspoon. And your big growlers, I use a teaspoon and a half. Please, if you're not going to do a batch prime, because I just did this myself because I screwed up, and I didn't want to take the, the, the stuff back out. If you already have your, your liquid in the bottle and then you dump your sugar in, it'll start foaming and you have to like cap it really, really fast. And that's what I had to do with three bottles this week because I forgot to put the sugar in them before I went ahead and, and, and siphoned in the cider. So do that first. Batch priming is a great idea. Batch priming is where we mix the sugar with a little bit of water, we heat it up to dissolve the sugar, and then we dump it in and then we siphon it. That gives us an absolute uniform mixture. And the way I actually like to do that is I take my priming sugar, put it in my bottling container, bottling bucket, whatever it's going to be, and I dump dump it in there. Now it's hot. Now when you dump it in there by itself, it, it, the heat releases really, really fast. And then I siphon on top of it so I don't kill my yeast with any heat. And that makes sure it gets mixed. 
right? Without trying to get, go in there and stir it after the fact. So just the natural process of siphoning mixes it. But when I'm doing a gallon using 32-ounce bottles, I'm doing three to four bottles. It's, it's an extra step I don't need. I just put the sugar right in the bottle. I think the big reason that people prefer batch priming is if you're doing a case of 12-ounce bottles in a five-gallon batch, you're doing about 60 beers or 60 bottles. That's a lot of bottles, so it's a lot of time versus a real quick time. And then boiling a three-quarter cup of sugar in water and dumping it's easier. And then the other thing is the opportunity to screw up increases. The opportunity to have a few bottles that you double-primed and a couple bottles you didn't prime goes up. So you have flat and you have explosions or at least overcarbonate. Usually you don't get explosions. I've seen some of it happen. What mostly happens when people overcarbonate is you get something and you open it just like runs and foams out. Getting it nice and cold is a, is a, a good way to kind of alleviate that problem. Anyway, no real difference other than the source of the, the sugar. And again, when people boost alcohol with pure sugar, most people prefer to use corn sugar because of the, the flavor profile at the end. I think if you're doing ciders and wines, it doesn't matter. If you're doing beers and you're, doing like a, you're boosting the alcohol content, you don't want to boost the body. So you want to make like a light tasting beer, but you want to put an extra one to two points of alcohol on it. The corn sugar probably is a better uh, vessel to do that with. But in the world of winemaking, I'll use table sugar. Doesn't bother me at all. Do you have any uh, favorite yeast for higher gravity, drier ciders, yeast, and meads? Um, Cuvée, I, I really like uh, by Red Star. Uh, Lavalin 1118 is kind of a go-to yeast. D76, I think it's either D76 or D71, are kind of go-to yeast in the commercial yeast, uh, the commercial uh, mead-making world. Um, but the, the, the Cuvée, uh, the Monachet, uh, those are two that I really, really like. And plain old Red Star Champagne yeast. If, if you want a high-gravity, dry performance and you're okay with some of the fruitiness being stripped out, which I am, uh, then then it's hard to beat Red Star Champagne yeast. But again, make what you like and drink what you like, so this might be worth experimenting with in these little one-gallon batches. Because what do you have into a one-gallon batch? Eight bucks? So you make five of them, you got 40 bucks, and then you've tested five different yeasts. And then you could say, well, this is my yeast. And then you can start using that in your larger batches, And maybe pick three more yeast and make three more one-gallons and taste that and, and put it all side by side. And eventually you'll find the thing that you prefer. And, and that's part of making this your own thing. Just remember, if you want to do a higher gravity or, in other words, more alcohol-containing dry cider, that you're going to have to add sugar. Because most of your plain Jane everyday apple juice is going to ferment out to 4.5% to 5%. That's it, no matter what yeast you use. And almost every ale, beer, yeast on the planet can hit that with, without even breathing hard. So most yeasts are going to result in a fairly dry cider. That's why you look at that, that, that uh, test that I have for you. The guy tried all the different ones. Some of his favorite yeasts for making dry ciders, where he's only maybe adding enough sugar to go to 6-7%, Saf Ale, which is a great dry yeast provider. Michael Jordan has a great post on Facebook of just tons of different yeasts. I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well for you. Okay, another uh, volley of questions uh, in one question. What is the best temp to keep them at while they ferment? Uh, you can look at the, the data sheets for any yeast strain, but most of these yeasts like temperatures in the 70s. 65 to 75 is about perfect. In other words, the room temperature many of us keep our, our, our rooms at. 
you start getting up into the 80s, you start getting to where they're producing off flavors and things like that. You start getting into the lower 60s, they really slow down. You get into the 50s, they, a lot of them just quit. So it's somewhere in that neighborhood. But here's my basic rules. If it doesn't feel hot to you, uh, unless you're one of these people who's always cold, and you're getting good, rapid fermentation, relax, don't worry, have a home-brewed cider. Okay? Um, how long does one gallon take to ferment? Depends on what you're making. It could be a, a mead that takes nine months to, to really finish right. Uh, a basic cider, even a cider with a little sugar added, three weeks to a month, you can get it into a bottle, but probably more like a month and a week. Uh, and then if you bottle condition it, seven to 14 days in the bottle. When the bottle goes cloudy and then clears, you can drink it. Will it get better with age? Of course. But it's it's ready. Most affordable place to get your yeast, airlocks, and sanitizers. Thanks for all you do. The home brewing, home wine making industry is very competitive. Everybody's really priced very much the same. Uh, Northern Brewer, Williams Brewing, uh, and uh, Midwest Brewing Supplies are all places I've done business with. Uh, a lot of them sell product on Amazon, and some of their product on Amazon's on Prime. A lot of this stuff is so inexpensive that it's more about what's the shipping cost. So always check Amazon if you're a Prime member because you might find that you know you can buy 10, 10 packages of uh, Red Star yeast for $9.99 on Amazon. And maybe you can get it for $8 over at the brew store if you're buying a 10-pack. But on Amazon, the shipping's free. So I always go to Amazon first. Uh, as far as sanitizers, uh, Star Sand, a bottle of Star Sand lasts a long time. And as I mentioned, I've gotten to the point now where pretty much I dump some hot water on stuff. I boil some water and dump it on the things that are going to touch it. You know, I, I take my, my plastic, uh, or my glass fermenter and I dump some, you know, about 180, 190 degree water in there, put the lid on it, shake it up and dump it out. And that's my sanitizing process for most of this stuff. Um, I've gotten off of it because I did two years of brewing here using star sand, which was always my go-to sanitizer, and I always wondered why the star sand made my water like this cloudy color here, and it didn't do that. And, like when I made it with my water in, in Arkansas, it stayed pretty clear. And uh, Nick Ferguson said, that's because your water's so alkaline that it's neutralizing the acid in the star sand, so you're basically not sanitizing. Well, then I'm just going to use clean water to sanitize since all my stuff came out great. So that's what I've been doing. I'm not recommending you do that. Um, and I'll tell you what, I clean... Really, really well. When I when I ferment, when I when I when I rack out of a fermenter, that sediment that's in the bottom, I take it outside. I jet that with the garden hose. I put a lid on it. If you're drilling your lids to make airlocks for your your, your plastic fermenters, always save one or two lids so you can always have a lid that you can put on there. Uh, that actually doesn't have a hole in it. And I shake the hell out of it, and then I open it up. And then the best way to clean your bottles out, forget bottle washers and racks and stuff like that, to get that sediment out of the bottle, do it immediately as soon as the bottle's done. Fill it up with water, take the bottle upside down, and shake it you know, vertically so the water's coming out like bloop, 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 like that. And do that once or twice, and you'll get everything out of that bottle. And then you don't have to ever worry about washing it. You just have to sanitize it, basically, or rinse it out. And so, so that's, that's that on the sanitizer. But the, the guys, they're all really competitive with each other on pricing. I've been working with all of the brew companies, or, or contacting all of them, Williams, Northwest, et cetera, um, about getting you guys a discount in the MSB, and they just don't get back to me. It's like they hate money. I think that a lot of people don't comprehend how the MSB works. I do my best to communicate it, but they don't understand, like, I've had people that I've actually, I finally got them to talk to me on the phone, 
And then they're like, well, we don't really want to spend a lot of money on this. And I'm like, okay, you read the email I sent you? Yeah. What part of no cost do you not understand? And the concept that they can get access to thousands of people that support my show with an online method of payment that are interested in buying their product at no cost to them is foreign. They, they, can't, they think I'm trying to sell them advertising. And I don't know if that's what's going on with these people, but uh, I don't know, maybe in January we'll pick... We'll pick four, I'll pick the four best ones, and I'll have you hit them all up. And whoever gets back to me first wins and gets in, and no one else does. And maybe that'll make them get off their asses and want to be part of what we're doing. Because what I'm talking about when I offer MSB to anyone is incremental business. And if you don't hate money, you love incremental business. I'm telling you. Let's take another one. Here's an intro. Michael Jordan's original post referred to filtering the mead. I haven't seen anything about filtering uh, in my limited experience brewing beer. What was Michael referring to, especially in small batches? Here's what Michael's referring to. You've made a small batch of mead. You have three quarters of a gallon to a gallon of mead. You want to put it into a secondary and let it clear out again um, and, and get it ready to bottle. And you don't want to rack it with a racking cane. Then you take some sort of a strainer, a screen, a colander, whatever, and you pour it really gently and slowly through there into your new bottle. He said, I think, a screen door. <laughs> And then you, you put you fix an airlock or a balloon to that. You let it do its thing. And uh, then you bottle it a week or two later. And it's just a way to get it off the sediment, make sure it's well settled out, good and clear before you bottle it. It's, it's the simplicity for simplicity's sake. I personally prefer to use a transfer hose with a racking cane. And I'll tell you why. It's not because you can't leave behind most of the sediment. You can If you, in fact, if you make one pour and never tilt it back up, just like you're pouring a bottle of Chimay beer all the way to the end and watch it, and as it starts to go, you got that little quarter ounce left in there and you stop, boy, you can leave all of it behind. But what's happening? It's hitting the bottom of the next container, and it's splashing. That means you're getting oxygen into it, and you can get oxidation issues. If you're going into a long-term secondary fermentation, you really don't want this. In fact, if you're putting it into a secondary fermenter, you're going to age it for like four or six months. You want to come up as high in the neck of that fermenter as you can. And one of the ways you can do that without watering it down, sterilize some marbles, get a big bag of marbles, pull them in the water and boil them, and start plunking them into your secondary until the volume comes up to almost the top. Put your airlock on. That reduces the surface area. You get a little bit of fermentation still going on, a little bit of CO2 blanket there, and you're going to have no oxidation. If you own a kegging system, you can just put a little squirt of CO2 in there, and you're good. If you don't own a kegging system, okay, what you do is you take a, a, a mason jar, and you put about four tablespoons of baking soda in it, and about four tablespoons, maybe eight tablespoons of white vinegar. Just pour some vinegar in there, and stir it up, and let it set for a little bit. <laughs> Science and chemistry, better living. Uh, they will react, they will release lots of CO2 if you give them about a minute and a half, two minutes of doing that, that whole uh, ball jar will be full of CO2. And since it weighs more than oxygen and nitrogen in the atmosphere, it will displace the oxygen and nitrogen. You now have a jar full of CO2. You, you will not be able to see this happen, okay? You just have to trust, this, and I'll, I'll tell you a way to prove it to yourself in a second. It's a cool science experiment you can do with your kids. Take the jar over your fermenter and pour the CO2 into the top of your primary fermenter, and put your airlock on. If you have a, a, a quarter inch 
barrier of CO2 floating on there, the oxygen can't get down through it. And eventually there'll be enough off-gassing of CO2 to displace all the oxygen out of your fermenter and through the airlock anyway. Now, how can you prove that this works? This is fun to do with your kids, guys. Get a big picture for this one, a really big picture, okay? Like a, like a song, like you'd put a beer pitcher in and, and put in like a cup of uh, baking soda and fill it like one-third with um, vinegar and then make a basic balance scale. Use a, a small pin or a nail or a brad and use a yardstick, like the free ones they'll give you for mixing paint with at, uh, or you buy for like a dollar at Home Depot and Lowe's. And so build a balance. And on each end of the balance, take a piece of string and, and hang a string off it and put a paper bag on both sides. An open, like a sack lunch bag, okay? And even if it doesn't balance perfectly, it'll balance somewhere for you. You can tell that, and you know they weigh the same. Use the same length of string, same size bag. They're both full of air because that's what's there. Now take, this is so cool. Kids love this, man. Take your, your beer pitcher full of CO2, and without dumping any of the actual vinegar in, pour the CO2 into one of the bags. The flipping balance will go down. You'll see the weight of the CO2 weigh more than air, and it will, it will weigh down one side of the balance. As long as it's a really you know, a nice, gentle, there's no friction resistance there. So if you can do that, then you can dump CO2 using vinegar and baking soda into a fermenter to purge out the oxygen. You can also do this to purge oxygen out of a five-gallon bucket you're storing food in without getting dry ice and getting all complicated. How cool is that? Another one, uh, Jerry said, how large should the balloon get used as an airlock? Additional information, I made coffee pot mead, three pounds of honey from Walmart, one orange zested, then peeled, and a section of orange picked off most of the pith. Uh, put in a gallon wine bottle, one lemon zested and peeled, sections picked of pith, added a bottle, one lime zested, juiced, added a bottle, shook the ever-loving snot out of it to aerate, pitched my yeast, and what was left of four grams plus. First morning, normal inflation balloon. This morning, balloon is the size of a large grapefruit and growing. Is this normal, or do you think I got a Band-Aid brewing picture included? Thank you, Jack, for helping us improve ourselves and our skills. Thanks for all you do, Jerry in West Virginia. Okay, so you don't have a Band-Aid brewing. You just have a very effective balloon. You're one of those people with the, and I looked at your picture, it's not that bad. It's, it's really not that bad. Generally, the reason these balloons don't get really big is they get a certain amount of pressure and some of it leaks out through the balloon because they're not perfect. That's why your helium balloons start to sink and, and get like soft. Or even a balloon you blew up with air when you tie a knot in it and you have it for a party and it sits around for a couple of days, it's smaller. Uh, there's some permeation of air is able to get out of it. Um, or you get a little bit off around. And I looked at your picture, and you did a really good job. You must have some really badass balloons um, that you were really able to get really deep around the, the, the neck of a bottle, and you've also got a glass bottle. So the gla you, it looks like a glass bottle, not a plastic bottle to me, and that means your bottle has no give, where a plastic bottle has some give, so some pressure equalization. What I would do if I were you in that situation, I'd leave it alone. If it gets much bigger pull the side of the balloon out and, and squeeze it and, and let some of the gas out of it. That's all. Um, or go ahead and spend a buck and get an airlock. And I'm going to have a deal for you guys that want to get an airlock for three bucks shipped to your house, uh, but that's going to be later in the week. I'm going to tell you how to do that. 
Uh, Sean in Florida says, another show with more on small batch cider making sounds great. Could you please include in the show notes some Amazon links to Prox mentioned in the cider podcast, Racking Kings, etc. I have two separate two-gallon batches made with different yeast that have finished remaining, ready to get siphoned into another container and get bottled and simply, or simply drank. Thanks for the information in the new hobby. Growing your own food and brewing your own booze is like printing your own money. Thanks again, Sean. That's interesting. It is like printing your own money. I mean, for, for eight bucks, I can make a better product than an Angry Orchard crap thing. And, and you know, my price per six pack is like two dollars versus nine dollars. So I'm, I'm thinking that's a good way to go. Um, here's what I'll do. This show's gone very long. It's almost three o'clock right now. When I publish this show, I won't have those links initially. By the end of the day, I'll get those links added to a few of the different things I'm talking about so that you can see what they are. Um, but this stuff, if you go to Amazon and search for Racking Cane, you'll find Racking Canes and, and what have you. So I'll post a whole list of the products that I recommend uh, for using and, and so that you can actually see them. And even if you don't get them from me, you, you can, you know, from my Amazon links, you can get them anywhere. I would also say look around and see if there's any home brewing supply stores around where you are and go there and, and do some business locally for stuff like this. A lot of stuff's bulky. A five-gallon carboy is a big glass bottle. Shipping it costs money, right, and has a lot of potential to get damaged. Uh, your big growler swing top bottles can be expensive to have shipped and what have you. So if you have a, a place close, go ahead and go see them. Now, I'm going to warn you, if they ask you what you're doing and you say, Well, I'm taking a bottle of Mott's apple juice, dumping some yeast in it, shaking it up before I do that, throwing a balloon on top of it, and that's what I'm doing. They're going to tell you you're wrong, or they're going to be familiar with it. But it's going to be one or the other. You may be better off just saying, I'm looking for these products and things like that. Uh, because what they're going to want to do is send you out the door... You know, $200 lighter in the pocket with a full kit with two carboys and a bottling bucket and a primary fertation bucket and bottling this and a, a jet washer and a gallon of star sand and all that. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do. I'm just saying you may not need all that stuff just yet. So, again, I just know there are a lot of purists, especially there's this overlap of, of winemaking, meat making, cider making, and then beer making. And in beer, you're not going to hear me telling you how to make a one-gallon batch of beer. It's too much trouble to make a gallon. It, it really is. So the cons, these concepts, and it's part of why, until Michael showed me how to do it, I'm like, duh, that's so freaking stupid simple. Why wouldn't you do that? But because I was mostly a beer maker, it never occurred to me to do it. So just be aware of that if you start dealing with a local homebrew shop. An interesting failure to carbonate situation. This has never happened to me, so I'm, I'm not sure what to tell you. I started making cider this past summer. Consistently comes out good tasting. However, it does not consistently carbonate. When it does, it usually carbonates inside of 7 to 10 days. And that's what it should be. 7 to 10 days, if it's not carbonated, something's wrong. You've either got it too cold in area, the yeast is dead and it's given out, or what have you. I make five-gallon batches using Kroger's half-brand apple juice, which is just juice and absorbic acid, and either champagne yeast for a dry or an ale yeast for a more sweet. So I guess you can use an ale yeast and get a sweeter residual product. Fermentation times vary, especially now that we've got into the winter months, but it's usually 10 days. I, I Then I rack into a secondary carboy. When bottling, I use a cup to a cup and a quarter of corn sugar, mixed into a carboy, then bottle into sterilized 22-ounce bombers. 
I used star sand. I had one batch carbonate with about three quarters of a cup of sugar too. The caps go on tight, and that's what I, that's what I'm saying. The the one to one and a quarter is plenty of sugar. I always use three quarters to a five gallon batch of just about anything, and it's fine. Prior to the summer, I only had made one batch of cider, which turned out wonderfully, very dry and very well carbonated. Otherwise, it's been beer, which has always been carbonated for me. Any thoughts on what I'm doing wrong? Thanks, long-time listener. Appreciate all you do. There's two things that I can think of that might be a case here. The first one is you said you use an ale yeast for a sweeter cider. If it's only the, the that variety that's not carbonating, you're probably adding it. You say it's just apple juice. You didn't tell me if you're using sugar. You're boost, if you're boosting the alcohol with sugar, you may be going, and that, that's the only way I would think you'd have much residual sweetness, okay? So if you're boosting with sugar and you're going past the yeast capacity to ferment the sugar and the alcohol, it's not going to carbonate. And the, the issue there is if you were to add champagne yeast at bottling time, not only is it going to carbonate the priming sugar, it's going to carb, it, it's, or use the priming sugar, it's going to go ahead And it's going to gobble up all the residual sugar that the ale yeast left behind, and you're going to have bottle bombs. So that could be the case. The other cases you mentioned, colder takes longer. Um, move them to a warmer place and see if that works. But if it's your sweet sweet cider that's not carbonating, that's your problem. You and and that's the only thing I can think of here. So you know, we did something like we we made a, a five gallon batch of cider into five gallons. You know, we added, I don't know, five pounds of sugar. And, and, and we have a potential now with alcohol to go up into 11%, 12%. We pitched an ale yeast that peters out at nine. Now I've got a sweet residual taste of my cider. Yay! We ain't going to carbonate with yeast. If you're going to do that, that, you can do that. And you could do that with apple juice concentrate instead of like corn sugar or table sugar if you wanted to. You can do a residual sweet, just like you do a residual sweet mead that way, by using a yeast that can't get to the full potential. Um, then you're going to either have to drink it still, or you're going to have to force carbonate it with some sort of a CO2 compressed gas system. Okay, so that could be the issue. So I'd look at which ones aren't doing it. And that's, I, I, if I were a betting man, that's what I would bet on. Especially since you're a long-term home brewer and you do know what you're doing. And that's that's my best guess. And this, the whole sweet comment just doesn't add up. If you take Safale 04 or Safale 05 and you put it into a gallon of apple juice, it ferments very, very dry because it can ferment 100% of the fructose in there. To, to leave residual sweetness, you have to go beyond its alcohol tolerance, and then you've got nothing to carbonate with. Okay, next one here is uh, from John. John says, what color glass is most effective for blocking sunlight and keeping our brews in? If your brewing shows you mentioned brown and green bottles that help keep uh, brew in a better condition to protect against sunlight, I just can't remember which color it was you mentioned. I'm currently using plastic 500-milliliter Coke bottles for short-term storage. We'll be using Budweiser bottles for long-term storage as I have pretty endless free supply. Um, when you're making ciders and meads and wines, this is way less important. This is why you see a lot of cider products in basically clear bottles. Um, UV light is not your friend with storage of anything. But if you're storing in general a dark end area, a cabinet, a cellar, eh, it doesn't really matter that much. The difference between clear and green from a UV spectrum is nothing. If you were inside there, it looks a little dimmer and the light doesn't look quite as bright. But the UV light that gets through 
passes through the green like nothing. Browns would stop UV light. It's very important in beers because beers have hops. And hops lend alpha and beta acids to the beer. And the alpha acids in particular, when exposed to UV light, once they've been emulsified and they're in the solution and they've been liquefied, UV light hits them, it takes almost no time at all, and they go off. And when they go off, they make a skunky, cabbage-like smell and flavor. You know how your friend says the Grolsch bottle or the Heineken bottle that he opens, it has that, that funky smell that you don't think is very good? That's just imported beer flavor. No, that's ruined beer flavor. That's what that is. That's ruined beer flavor. So if you want to get green bottles with beer in it, and it's in a box, and it always stays in a box, and you don't ever let it out to be hit with, with like natural sunlight, and you keep it in a refrigerator, keep it in a cabinet, whatever, it'll be fine. It gets hit with sunlight for five minutes. It starts to go off. That's all it takes. That's why when they sit it in the in the cooler in the in the beer cooler at the beer store and it's like that little section of imported beer they have sitting over there and it doesn't turn over that fast it gets that cabbagey smell to it. If you've ever had a a fresh Heineken or Grolsch they're fantastic. So then you might wonder well what about beers like Newcastle that are in a clear bottle or Miller Genuine Draft that's in a clear bottle Miller High Life's in a clear bottle and they don't get that skunky flavor taste whatever. They've been actually treated to stabilize the acids, from which process I don't really know, but there's a process these breweries use to stabilize them so they don't destabilize and go skunky under UV light. That's Corona. You know, you put the lime in it, that makes it taste good. That's the way the Mexicans do it. No. Corona, if you drink it fresh and it hasn't been exposed to UV light, has no skunk to it. But it has, I don't know if maybe modern Corona is, but when I was a kid and I used to drink Corona when I say a kid in my early 20s, And we used to put the lime in it thought we were like the Mexicans. We're not. Okay? It had that skunky taste. And the lime juice, the acid, the citric acid, took the skunky taste away. But do you know where the lime thing came from with Corona? So gringos, us, we go down to Mexico, sit on the beach, and Cabana Boy brings you a beer, and has a lime sticking in the top of it. You might have had Corona before, so you think, meh, I'll push that in there, make that skunky taste go away. Well, since they know how to drink Corona, and they don't leave it out in the sun, And they don't let it get exposed to UV light, even though it's in a clear bottle. It's probably not skunky anyway. So we come home and go, this is what the Mexicans do. And they put the lime in all the beers, but especially Corona, that's lime. They put the lime piece in there because they open the bottle at the bar, and the guy has to carry you the beer. And by putting the piece of lime in it, flies don't go in your beer. That's why they put the lime in there. And we decided they did that to flavor the beer. And then everybody did, and now they market Budweiser lime to the Hispanic segment of America, because that's how easy it is to market stuff to us, because that's how uninformed we are. I'm just saying. Oh, boy, just a couple more to go. This is going to be one of the longest shows I've ever done. Um, hey, Jack, I just want to throw some stuff out there. I love these shows, even though I have been brewing for years. Also, I sent you a smoked cherry porter years ago. I remember you, Rick. I remember you fondly because of that smoked cherry porter. It was very, and I mean very, very good. It's seldom that I remember a beer from that long ago, but I was living in Arkansas when you sent that to me. I remember that beer. It was very, very well done. There were a couple other beers in there. That was the best one. Um, there are a lot of one-gallon glass jugs of apple juice out there right now in grocery stores that are more expensive, but not much considering you get a permanent one-gallon glass jug out of the deal. I have organic, unfiltered apple juice jugs for $8.99, and the jug is there for primary and secondary fermentations. They are great for long aging of meads. 
absolutely, absolutely, absolutely 100%. And that's where I'm, I'm always looking for it. I'm always looking for, uh, and I don't see much of it here right now, which is sad. I may need to go by like Whole Foods or Sprouts or something like that. Those Sprouts put the 3006 sign up, and those of you from Texas know what that is, so I'm pretty well sworn off of them. But I, I guess if I can get uh, you know, a, a bottle of apple juice for 9 bucks, Here's why that's a great deal. Not only do I get fresh-pressed apple juice that, like I said, you can maybe make a little bit better cider out of, or it's just a good thing to drink. And you get the bottle for $8.99 from Rick uh, here, Organic Fresh Pressed Apple Juice. All right, I'm on Amazon. About the best I can do is $10 for a one-gallon glass jug shipped to me on Prime. Okay, so I get the apple juice free. That's the way I see that. Actually, they paid me 2 bucks to drink or ferment the apple juice, and I got the jug for 10 bucks. I mean, that, that's another way to look at it, right? So I'm always looking for stuff like that. Another source of, of, of jugs, pretty cheap. Uh, I mentioned like lower end table wines and white wines being okay for like, you know, drinking with dinner or whatever. Carlo Rossi, um, I'm not a fan of the red wines, some people are, but they're white wines. They're Chablis, they're Chardonnay, et cetera, stuff like that. Run from like 12 to 16 bucks. So I can either buy a, a, a bottle for, 10 bucks from Amazon on Prime, have it shipped here with the potential for it to break. Anytime glass ships, it can break. Or I go down to Albertsons, and for 13 bucks, buy a bottle of Carlo Rossi wine, spend a couple drinks, drink, a couple weeks drinking some out of it. If I get to the point where I want the bottle and it's not empty, it's jug wine. I can get a couple, uh, you know, quart jars or what have you, ball jars, pour it in there, put the lid on it, throw it in the refrigerator, and I've got a jug for next to nothing. So, Whenever you see the opportunity to pick up glass jugs, if you're going to be doing the small batch stuff to act as your secondary fermenters for long-term aging, definitely, absolutely do it. I also want to thank Rick. Rick did answer a lot of questions on the blog. I went ahead and re-answered them from my own perspective for the show because they're two different mediums. But thank you. And if you see Rick's answers, Rick knows what he's doing, folks. Almost done, but I got a volley of questions here. Um, how long does one gallon of cider take? Again, we've answered that many times. It depends, but generally a month to, to get into the secondary. You can probably bottle it within a week after that, or you can age longer if you want to. Why are tannins important in brewing? Um, tannins actually have nothing to do with fermentation at all. They're more about aging and mouthfeel and taste and texture. Uh, if you, if you've ever drank a, a red wine, a good red wine, and there's a little bit of a puckerness to it, that's tannins. That's why they go so beautifully with like a big piece of beef because the tannins cut the fat and the fat cuts the tannins and they're just made for each other. That's why they say red wine with red meat. That's the reasoning behind it. It's not because you have to do it. Um, and they're also important for aging. The longer you're going to age something, the more tannins you want there because tannins act as a preservative. You can also overdo tannins. But when you make something that that's, can be especially like a mead that's just a mead, it's just water and honey, like a show meat. And it's it could be cloyingly sweet, adding something like some black tea leaves or what have you, uh, or oak leaves or can be used to, to create, or blackberry leaf, to add some tannic acid. It's a balancing equation. So it, it always, is always depends. How much sugar is too much and will cause the yeast uh, too much trouble to get started? I, I don't know the answer. You can look it up. But... 
you can add too much. We discussed that today. How do I fix uh, a, a stuck fermentation? Uh, add champagne yeast. <laughs> But it's really going to, if it's something you didn't want to ferment out to that level, it can be a problem. Uh, another way is, and this is another case for small batch wheat, cider and mead making, if you have a well-attenuated, happy uh, cider you can that's it, kind of done but not been bottled yet or whatever, sometimes blending that into a stuck fermentation will get it going. Uh, Repitch the same type of yeast. Um, that's, that's another way to do it. Make sure your temperature is, is not too low. Be sure it's stuck before you try to fix it. It may be done and just not clearing. On that, how can you tell fermentation is done if the original concoction is cloudy? Cloudy before the yeast was added, like good organic cider. It will still clear. Cloudy cider, when the fermentation's done, will still clear. You might want to do two rackings of it, but it will still clear. Um, how do you really know it's done? You take hydrometer readings. You, you, you calculate your, your, your target ending specific gravity based on you know the sugar content of what you have and the starting gravity of what you have. And when the fermentation takes this, this, the final gravity down to that level, you know the sugar is done. It just is going to take time to clear. You can use things like peptic enzyme to help clear out things like that a little bit, though it's really not necessary. Time clears everything. Time will clear everything. Uh, it, it's a different substance by the time fermentation is done. All of the sugars that were part of the suspension are now alcohol, which is clear. And what's left is pulp and pith and stuff like that, and that kind of settles out. And again, racking will help with that as well. So that knocks that out. And I can't believe it, but there's only one left. And thankfully, it's one I've already answered. Can you use frozen concentrate to make cider? Absolutely, as long as it has no preservatives in it. Okay, so we're done. Guys, I hope you enjoyed that one. That that took a lot out of me, and I know it was a long episode. Some of you may listen to it in three bites or something like that, but uh, hopefully we now have the definitive uh, resource for people new to making ciders and meads and stuff like that to at least get going and get past the initial scary points and pitfalls and uh, the tips and tricks to get things fixed and like to give you the freedom and liberty to not be worried about it, to realize... When we're dumping apple juice into a bottle, adding some yeast and a, and a quart of cranberry juice, we're cooking burgers and steaks. We're not trying to make prime rib. We're not trying to make roasted tenderloin. We're, we're, we're at that you know high-quality, everyday mentality. And we can take things up a notch with, with meats, but we can also not be so serious about it, relax and let nature do what it's been doing for as long as man has known to mix sugars and waters together and let nature take its course. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or if they don't. I can make anybody pretty I can make you believe any lie I can make you pick a fight With somebody twice your size well, I've been known to cause a few breakups And I've been known to cause a few births well, I can make you new friends I'll get you fired from work And since the day I left Milwaukee Lynchburg and Bordeaux, France Been making the bars Lots of big money 
helping white people dance. I got you in trouble in high school. But college now, that was a ball. You had some of the best times you'll never remember with me. For your best man's embarrassing speech And also for those naked pictures of you at the beach I've influenced kings and world leaders I helped Hemingway write like he did I'll bet you a drink or two that I can make you put that lampshade on your head. Cause since the day I left Milwaukee, Lynchburg, Bordeaux, France, I've been making a fool out of folks just like you. 